Cool. And we're live. Hey, guys. Uh, bonjour tout le monde. Uh, my name is John F. McDropout. I'm here with, uh, representing the uh, Left Coast Atheists. Um, we're doing a uh, Sophia X. Nilo today, a panel discussion on the impropriety of evidentially arguing for the resurrection by Dr. Greg Bonson, um, one of the more popular and, uh, well, a popular may not be the right word, um, one of the more, uh, let's say, stereotypical uh, presuppositional uh, essays that, that, uh, that are available. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the more interesting ones, especially when considering um, how the argument between evidentialism and, and presuppositionalism seems to be very prominent uh, in these days. So, um, so before we get too far into it, I'd like to uh, introduce the panel here. Um, to my left is uh, Ozymandias Ramses. Um, good day, sir. Hello. Pleasure to have you. Um, to his left is uh, Gibran Lubowick. Hi. Hey, good Jib to be here. <laughs> cool. And uh, to his left is uh, uh, a guy I like to call Eddie, but uh, his name is uh, Epicurious A. Greek. What up? Good day, sir. And uh, next to him is uh, a friend of mine, Elijah Lees. Uh, Hello, everyone. Excellent. Now, he's the reason that we're all late, so you can uh, send your hate mail to him. And please do, yes. All right. Excellent. So cool, guys. Um, you know, this this document is one of the more um, it's short, uh, but it packs a lot into it as far as presuppositional theology goes. Um, now, um, it was written in 1972. Um, my copy says that it was printed in Synapse 2, which I guess is a publication by Westminster Seminary, um, and I think that when it was published, it was, it, I mean, that, it sounds like it was kind of in a, in a magazine or, or something along that lines, right? A, a journal of, of some kind? If anybody uh, have any information on that? No, I don't, but it would probably be some kind of in-house uh, publication, I would guess. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the, the sense I got from the, 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 the information that they provided here anyways. Um, cool. So, um, I don't know. Uh, first off, uh, I guess... Um, we, we should really discuss kind of what he's trying to get at here. Now, he's, he's trying to say that um, arguing about the evidence for the resurrection to unbelievers would be um, an improper way of arguing. Um, it, it, am, I, am I going going the wrong way here? Or, um, it seems, no, no. That's, it seems that like is, he has a, yeah, that he has a direct problem with um, arguing with evidence. Um, or trying to point to facts as supporting the resurrection. Um, yeah. This this sort of is, is a little bit counterintuitive to me. Um, it, it seems to me like you should be pointing to as many facts as possible in order to make your case stronger. Um, and I guess that's why he's writing this, isn't it? Um, is is that sort of the the neutral ground that he's trying to avoid? Yeah. The, 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 um, basically, this this article is sort of a a snapshot. Uh, or like a for example article about um, presuppositionalism in general and the difference between it and evidentialism and, and he's you know they've he, this is sort of his way of kind of defending some of the claims of presuppositionalism as a as a method by saying all right let me let me take this just this one uh, argument for example the resurrection and let's look at um let's look at the reasons why I personally reject it as or reject that it's biblical to to argue for it. Um, in the way that evidentialist apologists do it. Hmm. Maybe we should just say a little bit about what, what, what different kinds of apologetical techniques. Um, 
just sort of to set the landscape because it might not be apparent to people you know what we mean by evidentialism. Um, uh, the author Greg Bonson was a student of Cornelius Van Til. He was sort of his uh, his protege in that he was a a presuppositionalist. Um, so he uses a style of apologetics called presuppositionalism, which is what we're going to be talking about in here is this particular perspective and arguing against a more traditional or conventional form of apologetics um, known as evidentialism. And evidentialism, as you if you know if you pay attention to the word, it should suggest um, that it's based on evidence. So an evidentialist is someone like uh, well someone like William Lane Craig, for instance, when he argues um, for the historicity, and the reliability of the Gospels. He's he's arguing on the basis of evidence. He's saying, look, there are there are historical sources here. There's historical evidence that points to the veracity of uh, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on that basis, on that kind of evidence, purely ordinary historical evidence, as he sees it, uh, using the standards of of ordinary historical inquiry, and conclude that the resurrection happened, um, and thus a miracle happened. And that's you know a, one way of arguing for Christianity. Uh, William Lane Craig would be just one person. There are other people. Gary Habermas would be another. Um, Michael Lycona. I mean, just tons and tons of of apologists argue on the basis of of evidence um, for the resurrection. Uh, so what he's arguing here, Bonson, is is that somehow this is wrong. Not just not likely to work. It it somehow it's it's more than just not likely to be effective. It's improper. Uh, you have no business doing this as an apologist. And it's not that he doesn't think evidence has no role, but when it comes to arguing for the resurrection, especially, there's this is wrong-headed. You're you uh, you have no business doing this. You, literally, you ought not to do this. Is his position. A really interesting part of this article, actually. Um, you'll see where he uh, he does when, when he does talk about evidence in a positive way. He he refers to it as something that is there, sort of placed there for the sake of strengthening the faith of the believers, right? Because for the the believers, according to presuppositionalists, are the only ones who have a coherent worldview by which to even understand the evidence in the first place. So that's really the only good that it can serve is to uh, strengthen the faith of believers. Yeah, he actually says he uh, he says later on, or well, I know, maybe but second or third paragraph in uh, to this uh, article, he says that it serves as a kind of confirmation. So the idea is it's a kind of ex post facto justification. It's a justification after the fact. You know, what, you know, once you're already a Christian, once you're already on board believing this, this evidence is going to make sense. It's going to be even more con convincing. It's going to shore up your faith. It's going to reaffirm your faith and uh, increase your, 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 you know, your, uh, uh, strengthen your faith. Uh, but really, that's not how you get to a position of faith. Uh, it's not on the basis of this evidence. It, this evidence, uh, arguing evidentially has to come after faith. And again, there's a whole host of um, of presuppositions, you know, that they go into play here, you know, about the nature of humans, uh, the nature of sinful humans, you know, what they're capable of understanding, you know, if they're capable of changing their mind at all, even if they did see evidence, even if they saw Christ raised in front of uh, their eyes. And he actually quotes a Bible verse about that, you know, if they if they no amount of evidence could convince an unbeliever one way or the other because of the state of their soul. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I, you know, it, right off the bat, though, I mean, he doesn't get, kind of go that far. I mean, he he kind of goes more into um, what? How does he say it here? I wrote uh, all facts are created facts, which can be properly on, understood only when given the interpretation the creator intends. Um, so he's he sort of you know th there is no real he he's not really getting into the fact that. Um, uh, well, I guess he sort of is there. I mean, he he is stating that that we are kind of uh, attending the facts with our presuppositions, right? I mean, um, that we're viewing it through our worldviews, and I, that's that's pretty pretty standard presupp. Uh. I want to I want to make a very brief note here. Um, there there's an amusing logical consequence of this statement, and that is either that God is created, or that there are no facts regarding God. And um, I I don't know if he was thinking particularly clearly when he wrote that down. He he probably meant it in a different way, but one could interpret it this way quite easily. Yeah, uh, to be charitable, one would have to sort of uh, sort of restrict the domain of of what he's calling a fact here. Um, so, I mean, for the for the purposes of this discussion, maybe we should just say he's talking about facts about the resurrection. Uh, if, if he means it in, in in an absolute sense, all facts, then there are going to be some uh, some. Unexpected implications. <laughs> well, I mean, part of the reason I'm not too inclined to be charitable to Bonson here is that he's quite precise in a lot of other cases, and to have him be so imprecise in this case, where the the consequence is so bad to him, I I think maybe he was admitting something about his own belief system there. Freudian well, slip of a sort. Well, uh, could you elaborate on that point, like sort of explain what where where the, what the part the problem is there, as you see it, if you don't mind? I... Oh, okay. Well. Well, the, the, most Christians would hold that, that God is uncreated, um, but also most Christians would hold that there are facts about God. God is uh, the perfect being. God exists as a result of being the perfect being, as someone who believes in the ontological argument would say. Um, so these are all facts about God. If he's saying that all facts are created, then he's either having to claim that these facts are themselves created, uh, which means that, and he says create, I mean, th th that, that means that God is created then, if the facts about him are created. Uh, or, alternatively, there are no facts at all about God. Yeah, yeah. Here I think we have to sort of cut him a little slack, that he would say, look, all facts except facts about God. Um, you know, everything else depends on God, but God depends on nothing. God has this property of, of, of aseity, self-existing, his uh, existence is dependent or contingent upon nothing, um, so that's not a created fact. Um, but facts, all other facts, every, you know, about reality, those are sure. created facts because every other fact about reality is a creation of God. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I I just found that amusing when I first read it. I'm not actually suggesting we interpret it in the way that I I I have chosen to interpret it in. Uh, yeah, a qualifier was needed there it, yeah. because it was sort of stated categorically. But but anyway, sorry, that was a bit off off topic. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but it explains what he means by a created fact. When he says, you know, all facts are created, he doesn't mean that we're creating the facts. We're just making yeah, yeah. crap up. It's they're they're created because they are functions of a creator. They are brought. They are facts brought into existence by the creator. Mm -hmm, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, and he states that you know all all such facts are demonstrate the truth of Christianity in that case, right? Um, you know, and that's that's true. If it's, if uh, if that is true, then then all such facts would demonstrate the truth of Christianity. So, 
So I think he's I think he's right in that. Um, and uh, you know, the next paragraph he says, you know, um, a serious difficulty arises when the epistemological significance of the resurrection is separated from its soteriological function. Um, couple, there's a word there I had to look up. Um, soteriological, I guess, is referring to the study of religious doctrines regarding salvation. Um, soteriology. That's right, yeah. uh, oh, so yeah. soteriologically would be. Um, uh, the the salvation effect of the of the resurrection. Um, I, I right. Think yeah. Or I think as a Calvinist, it might uh, how they would view uh, salvation is something that uh, the believer doesn't really come to on his own, uh, just be, through luck of getting the right facts and right understanding. But it's something that God uh, chooses to guide him to before all the facts, and his salvation is an afterthought. So. To separate, uh, so to say that the resurrection is just one thing that can be deduced on the basis of evidence is, in a way, saying that you're earning, uh, you are clever enough to figure out the truth. Therefore, salvation is yours. I think that's what he. I think uh, that's what he's accusing the evidentials of doing, uh, separating uh, uh, God choosing to save somebody from that person. Um, from uh, that person coming on to the facts on his own or her own. Yeah, I'm it's. Not... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead, Jabron. I was going to say, I guess I'm not confident that's what he's saying, but it might just be because I'm not as familiar with um, uh, with Christianity as you are. Um, the what what I, I I take his meaning to be is essentially that to to argue evidentially is to presuppose that there's some sort of neutral ground that we can argue from. And that doing this um, is is not something we should we shouldn't say that we should never admit that there's a neutral ground because there isn't a neutral ground from his point of view and I actually agree with him on that, um, but he I, that's what I take him to mean more than anything is that he's basically saying we cannot we shouldn't admit to this neutral ground that doesn't exist. Now, what I what I think you oh Ozzy, do you want to say something? Uh, yeah, I will. But go ahead, please, please go okay. ahead. Uh, what I what I actually think he's saying here is, um, and, and it is it is the Calvinistic view that, um, and and to sum up, basically Calvinist soteriology in one sentence is that the entire process of salvation is 100 percent in God's hands, and and there's nothing that uh, humans do to contribute in any way. Mm. But what I think he's saying here is, he, like, what he's saying is that because and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the um, the in incapability of a non-believer to um, even understand the evidence around them to be able to accept it for various reasons um, because they're uh, one thing they have incoherent worldview also their um, hearts are hard they're blinded in certain areas to see the truth what he's saying here is that the the salvation of only through um, what happened in the resurrection, the, the saving power of it, can anyone begin to even start talking about the uh, the epistemology behind it or the, the the evidence for it, right? The knowing whether or not it, it actually happened. That, that seems to be what he's saying here. So maybe a little bit of both then, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, the we sort of can't overlook the, the Calvinism here. Uh, I mean, outside of Calvinism, soteriology, uh, well, I mean, soteriology just refers to doctrines of redemption and salvation and, you know, different, different uh, sort of flavors or traditions or denominations of Christianity um, sort of have different theories, salvific theories or, or soteriological theories, theories of redemption and salvation. Um, the Calvinistic one is, is kind of interesting because they, they believe that when uh, Christ died, uh, and was resurrected. Uh, his, his that act, uh, that miracle, uh, 
um, results in our uh, in, in the salvation of everyone that it's meant to save. Uh, you know, salvation is uh, the, the the sacrifice of of Jesus is perfectly salvific. It saves everyone it was intended to save. There's no one left over. So there's no it's not it's not up to you. You know, uh, uh, to uh, to sort of accept or or not. Uh, you know, God knew from you know when He created the universe and before from all eternity, He always knew who would be saved and who would not be saved. Um, this is sort of tied into with their uh, idea of, of predestination, uh, and consequently, it's never the case that ah, oh, God is disappointed that someone wasn't wasn't saved. You know, when, you know when Jesus uh, died and, and was resurrected and, and a salvific effect uh, took effect. It affected absolutely everyone that was supposed to affect. There's no, you know, there's no. There doesn't need to be a plan B. There, there's no regret on God's part. It, it all had to work. And and where the point that he's going to in in all this um, is uh, that he he thinks that we shouldn't be separating the the salvific uh, effect or uh, the soteriological effect from the epistemological uh, questions at issue here. So he goes on to say, uh, it is with regret that one notices neo-evangelicals severing the justifying efficacy of Christ's resurrection from its truth-accrediting function. So when he says the justifying efficacy, he's talking about um, uh, sort of salvation. Um, so it's with regret that one notices um, neo-evangelicals severing the justifying efficacy of Christ's resurrection from its truth-accrediting function. In reality, the latter is dependent upon the former. Um, so uh, only as Christ's resurrection with its ensuing regeneration by the Holy Spirit of Christ saves a sinner from his rebellion against God and God's word can it properly function to exhibit evidence for God's truthfulness. Um, so the whole concept of truth um, and epistemic concepts like justification um, they're all actually tied into this this whole whole thing. It's, it's all of a piece. Um, you, you really can't have one without the other. And so because they're, they're all one piece, it's wrong when someone tries to argue for the resurrection on the basis of evidence as if there's some neutral ground, um, as Gibran said, because you're, it, it, it's presupposing that the whole concept of truth and evidence um, and uh, epistemic justification can be made sense of apart from the, the, sort of the whole salvific... Uh, uh, effect of Jesus' death and resurrection. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I was. Uh, so, I mean, I'm kind of curious to get back to um, to see if the, if that's even biblically linked. And um, one of the verses that that brought to mind when you were bringing that up, Oz, was First um, Corinthians 15. Uh, what is it? Uh, let's try 13 to 17, maybe. Um, seems like that's probably about right. Um, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ then is Christ not risen? And if Christ not be not risen, then is our preaching in vain? And if your faith is also in vain, yea, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he has not raised up. If so, be that the dead not raise not. For the dead... For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ not be raised, your faith is in vain. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much where it ends there. Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's kind of just circularly saying the same thing over and over there. Um, but but isn't, isn't that biblically kind of referenced that um, if there is no resurrection, wouldn't there be a, a problem with the idea of 
of uh, of regeneration, right? I mean, I think after that that quote you gave there, Ozzy, was there was the idea of you know um, only as Christ only as Christ's resurrection with its ensuing regeneration by the Holy Spirit of Christ saves a sinner from his rebellion against God and God's word, and can it properly function to exhibit the evidence of God's truthfulness. Um, so, I mean, in, in that way, isn't, isn't the Bible actually saying to start with the assumption of the resurrection? Um, uh, in, in that way, um, I, guess, I guess the idea of preaching being in vain doesn't necessarily entail um, yeah. the argument, but... Yeah, this is one of those areas where, where I think that, that this is just a huge stretch um, from from what this passage is saying in its context to what um, Bonson is trying to imply. I mean, there are certain he's 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 taken certain you know phrases and terms out and saying that they might be able to apply here and there, but but this particular um, passage has nothing to do with with anything in this article really. It, it, it's, it's about. Um, Really dealing with people who deny that Christ physically rose from the dead, and if and he's basically making the argument that, um, well, if he didn't, then he's basically saying that that if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then this religion as a whole is nonsense. Your the faith that you have recently come to and are and are fighting so hard for is is worthless. You're not going to rise from the dead yourself. You know, it's 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 he's defending that particular aspect of the Christian faith, um, the resurrection, to people who might say, well, maybe he didn't actually physically rise from the dead. It's, it's nothing to do with any of this. Yeah, what, what I think Bonson is trying to do here is trying to suggest that, look, for Paul in, in, this, um, in this epistle, uh, in 1 Corinthians, when he, he, he's saying this, he, he's trying to establish the centrality um, of the resurrection of Christ. You know, if, if, if Christ wasn't resurrected, well, it's all garbage. You're, you're, everything you've learned, everything you've been doing is a complete waste of time. So he's trying to suggest that this is absolutely crucial. It, it is yeah. central. And, and and Bonson seems to be taking from that, oh, well, if it's central, well, then, you know, all these epistemological uh, considerations um, uh, have to be tied to it. But but that's the connection that he doesn't actually make there. Textually, yeah. I mean, scripturally, that's that, that's not connected to these epistemological issues. Paul's not talking about that. <laughs> right. And actually, now that I go back and, and read in the article, because um, I was just going off you bringing up the passage, um, when, he, when he actually quotes that passage, he only quotes it as, um, right here, moreover, a decisive refutation of the resurrection which shattered the validity of the Christian faith. So he actually is, in the article, using it properly. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I might, be, I might be reading too much into that. Um. Sure. Um, okay. The, I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of... Um, it, he he often says, um, how is it here? Um, that it's it's foundational. Um, that when you're using evidence for Christ's resurrection, um, you are using it as a foundational method of apologetical witnessing, and that uh, where does he say? Whereas their only proper place is confirmatory of the believer's presupposed faith. So is he is he saying that um, it's it would be. It's it's absolutely wrong to base an apologetic on evidence of the resurrection. Yes. Yeah. So that it's it's a it's almost like a hard and fast rule that it would be um it's it's sinful almost to to argue the other way around. It's it's fruitless because of the reasons we brought up earlier, um, because of the the nature of the unbeliever and their inability to uh, see the facts. If you just present them with evidence, there it's just not going to change their minds because their hearts are hard. And also, it is sinful in the sense that it, it sort of puts God on the docks. Yeah, it asks it what 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 this is doing is asking. It, it's presupposing that there's some neutral uh, territory, neutral perspective or 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 position 
from which Christians and non-Christians can evaluate evidence. And so God is on trial here. The resurrection and Jesus is on is on trial here. And the court of appeal is your autonomous reason, your your ability to to adjudicate evidence. And that's what he wants to reject. What he wants to say is, no, no, on 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 our view as Christians, uh, at least as Calvinists, anyway, uh, that's not how it works. Um, you know, you have to start with uh, with God and, uh, and and go from there. So yeah, he thinks it's a, a kind of uh, impiety. It's a, a you know, you're you're making an idol of of human reason here. You're uh, you know, there's no such neutral ground um, where two people can just look at the facts neutrally. Uh, without bias, and then you know, well, yeah, you'll come to see that I'm right. That that you know, this miracle happened, and uh, you know, therefore you should become a Christian. You know, he, he thinks that that's not going to happen. There's no, and it, that can't happen because the um, there are no such neutral facts. But uh, and the thing I don't get though is uh, how um, he said one of the things he says that because there's no neutral facts and because of uh, the human's capability of rejecting God. Um, I don't really think that really applies well to Paul because he argues, like, just to use 1 Corinthians 15.4, he says he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. He's citing this piece of authority that um, that the church has accepted. Not even the church, but um, when Paul would preach to Jews, of course, he would use the scriptures as the basis for, hey, there's Christ, he's the Messiah, here's prophecy X, Y, and Z that would help contest that. So, and Paul doesn't say at any time, well, the Jews and their broken nature are never really going to understand the uh, message that's going to be presented to them. Although, uh, he might say that there are people who are hard of heart, but he would never say, but he would himself um, argue from evidence, I would say. Yeah, and I would agree with you there. I, I, Paul, as as his preaching is presented, at least in the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, um, I do think he, 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 is, he is very, very... Um, okay with meeting the, the unbeliever wherever they stand, which in his culture was a lot um, more tedious because people stood in a lot of different places if they don't really stand here, you know. I mean, here you're either generally, there's a few religious positions to take, but back then, you know, you had the Jews and you had the Greeks, you had to take completely different approaches, and I think he does a pretty decent job of doing that. Yeah, although I would have to say, and, and, and this is sort of orthogonal to what a Calvinist would say, but I mean, I, I, I think the, the, the picture of, uh, of what Paul was doing and how he was operating and who he was preaching to is is a little bit different in, in Acts than it is in Paul. You know, like in the the epistles of Paul, it seems to me Paul, if I, I can't think of it offhand, a, an exception, but I could be wrong. It seems like he's always talking about you know you know remember how you used to worship idols and stuff like that. It sounds to me like he must have been you know in the epistles. It sounds like Paul is always preaching not to Jews but to pagans, pagan converts. Um, so, you know, but of course, yeah, he, it depends on the church he's addressing, really, because if he's addressing churches in Greek, like Corinth, of course, they're going to be made up of, if not Hellenistic Jews, then former pagans. On the other hand, uh, because Paul was, in tradition, is considered the apostle to the Gentiles. However, if you look at uh, the book of Hebrews, which I know some people will bring up that, well, that's, there's no way of saying that yeah. that was definitely Paul who wrote that, and that's debatable, but if you look at how Paul, how um, someone sending a church a letter to the church in Jerusalem, which Hebrews was directed to, then you will see that it's more emphasized on preaching to those of a Jewish background. So it's 
so it's always about location as well as as right. well as audience. Whereas yeah. whereas Axe is mostly like here's Paul on the missionary field, and it's just describing, and it's describing people who might not have been, uh, who not might who might not have heard the word yet, or different uh, people of different walks of life. Yeah, he he is the apostle of the Gentiles, and and because I don't think he did write Hebrews, all of his epistles are addressed primarily to Gentile audiences. But Romans is different, actually. Romans is is if you if you you can tell just by reading it, it's traditionally a view to be a combination. Yeah. There's a there's a church. The church in Rome had a, a yeah. big combination of the two, and that's where he really gets in. Like the first few chapters, he's he does a pretty good job of um sort of giving sort of addressing the Jews in the church from a Christian perspective. And, and it is a, a much different approach than he would normally use, like in uh, in the book of Acts and his speech. Uh, one thing that should be said, though, like it, w the, the point I brought up is completely sort of orthogonal um, to, to, to this essay because, of course, Calvinist is going to accept all of these texts, Acts, and and all of the, uh, the epistles uh, ascribed to Paul as, as being... Um, Accurate um, and reliable, and in fact, inerrant. Right. So, um, the, I was sort of just expressing my own uh, sure. my own uh, views of the, of the textual evidence, and then who is authentically the voice of Paul here. But uh, there is a uh, oh, geez, I forgot the, I forgot my point there. Um, hmm. I'll, I'll have to come back to it. Cool. Oh, well, no, I just remembered what it was. Yeah, please go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know anywhere in Paul where he argues evidentially um, for the resurrection. I mean, can you think of uh, anywhere where Paul is sort of arguing to try to establish that the resurrection happened? I mean, of course he tries to convince them, yes, it happened, it's important, and, and, and he tries to argue that he rose, um, but does he actually sort of point to evidence of this? I mean, he says no. it's important, and he, but... You know, I, so I think here Bonson is right that you know he just asserts baldly um, the resurrection, and whether he means Jesus rose spiritually or or, or rose bodily, and of course the tradition uh, uh, mainstream Christianity is that he rose bodily. You know, who knows? Um, you know what kind of evidence, if any, Paul ever ever gave? But I can't think of a anywhere in Scripture where where yeah. Paul talks about specific evidence that would lead one to think, oh yeah, this happened. You know, he never I, I mentions. I think he does it. actually. I... He does. Well, um, in a loose way, but because you know he's a lot closer to the supposed events back then. I mean, for example, in um, I think it's Philippians, if I'm not mistaken, I might be wrong, but um, it's uh, he does he, he gives that sort of little, and and he probably didn't write this right. He probably um, is quoting it as sort of a creed, but that um, he he talks about uh, where Jesus appeared to the 500 witnesses at one time. He or he appeared first to, to Peter, and then there. Oh, that's first that Corinthians is, 15, isn't it? I. Is it First Corinthians? I, I think it's. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. It is First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, I think. I was thinking of uh, the post-resurrection. Yeah. Well, I, I could be wrong about that, but I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, and then he was exalted at the end of it. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, I think I'm. Yeah. Anyway, about yeah, that. you're right. He does uh, talk about the post-resurrection appearances. It, yeah. Yeah, and, he, and they're, they're sort of a central part of the creed, you know, like, and I mean, to bring up, he, you know, he appeared to, to be so specific, saying he appeared to 500 witnesses, I do think this is sort of a, a meant to be confirmatory, in a way, to those who would hear it. Yeah, but I, I don't I don't think so, actually, uh, because when, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's saying that, um, it's been a while since I read it, but it seems to me he's not arguing to to sort of convince people of the resurrection there. Uh, he's really uh, seems to be making more a point about himself. 
um, and the, the sort of the, the legitimacy of an apostleship. Uh, am I wrong about that? No, no. That, I think that's the point. It. It's, it's not. Yeah, I do think that's the point. I, I don't. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that Paul ever engaged in what we would now call apologetics in any sense, right? I don't think that's what he was doing. I just think that because I think that that, that creed almost definitely um, was something that was that was not original to him, which um, it's not quoted so much that as if it were. Um, I think. Uh, it just seems to me that the way it's the way it's worded, the, the the content of it does have these things in there that are intended at least to strengthen the faith of those who hear it. So in a sense, it's it's almost exactly what Bonson says, right? It's um it's it's yeah. addressed to the faithful, but it's not. It's, no, it's certainly not um an a, a example of what you would call normally evidential apologetics. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, um, yeah, that that creed has sort of is um, that he recites there, First Corinthians 15, is often taken to be. Um, Older than that, Paul is sort of passing on something that he received, um, and uh, the passage we're talking about for those who are listening and watching it. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received: that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to, to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and it, and it goes on. So there, it, he really just, it doesn't sound to me like he's arguing for um, the resurrection, certainly not arguing evidentially for the resurrection. He's just saying it. This is the creed. This is what we believe. He's speaking to the faithful. These are already the converts. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think Bonson's kind of on on firm ground on that. There doesn't seem to be any evidence there, and I can, and that's the sort of the only place I can think of where he comes close to sort of arguing anything or, or talking about the sort of the the crucifixion uh, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, in yeah. Anything that mirrors the Gospels. Yeah, and then we can go off on on a huge tangent on this topic. I find this interesting. Like, I mean, I I I will. I'm I'm kind of of the camp that uh, that Paul's theology about Jesus may have come before some of these stories um, were even really conceptualized properly. You know that maybe his his whole theology of of the resurrection is is pretty much completely different. I mean he I almost needs to be arguing for like a spiritual revelation in a lot of senses. But you know that's that's pretty much beside the point. I think. I mean I think that uh that that creed itself or it, my opinion is it is for, it was originally formulated as sort of a um uh. A list of of who we can trust to have authority in the church, right? That to me yeah. is, is is to establish authority in these ver to these various people. That's right. Amusing, amusingly enough, we're arguing evidentially about the propriety of arguing evidentially for the resurrection. <laughs> yeah, meta. I guess we are. Very meta. Um, well, I mean, it's important though because we need to find figure out. I mean, supposing we, we read this article and we and and we can find all kinds of cases. Uh, in uh, in the New Testament, you know, where Paul uh, or in Acts, for instance, you know, uh, apostles are described as arguing evidentially for the resurrection. Well, then, well, so much the worse for presuppositionalism and Bonson and all those arguments, right? So that you know, it, it's important that that we able to be able to say whether or not there's 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 a disconfirmation of this this claim. There there isn't. I I can't think of any. It, it seems to me that it's it's perfectly plausible to say just on the basis of the evidence. Paul never had anything to say about um, uh, evidence for the resurrection to anybody. I mean, he might have, but we don't have a record of that. I agree. I think it's actually quite important. I was just noting the irony there. 
but that just just because uh, let's not assume that that Paul was a presuppositionalist by any means either. He's certainly not anything. I mean, anything like presuppositionalism as we know it now, or even knew it in Van Til's day. Well, he couldn't have been. I mean, the he was part of he was participating in developing the ideas that the presuppositionalists presuppose as part of their worldview. Sure, but what we're saying is his, his if he were to engage with unbelievers, sure, I don't sure. think that he would have used anything like presuppositionalism. It's not a very convincing argument. Even when presented well, I don't think it's exceptionally convincing. So I, I don't think he'd be as well known as he is if, if he did. And there, it wasn't there his is job, an really. There is an argument to be made, though. Like He was... Oh, you muted yourself, Ozzy. Sorry about that. Um, he was writing at a time uh, and preaching at a time when the idea of a resurrection wouldn't have been sort of out of the question the way it is uh, in the minds of most people today. I mean, you know, we, we don't, we're not inclined to believe in miracles, but people believed in miracles back then. They believed in magic back then. All kinds of things were happening all the time. Uh, I mean, just just look at the Gospels, okay? I mean, I mean, they're 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 later than the the epistles, but you know, even in the Gospels, you have a story where you know, Herod starts hearing all these wonderful things about Jesus, and, and, you know, he's just executed John the Baptist, and, you know, what do the Gospels tell us Herod said? And this, it's not important whether or not this happened or not, but, but the readers of, of this Gospel are, are told that Herod's conclusion was that, well, maybe John the Baptist has risen from the dead, you know? So, obviously, to the, the you know, the people at the time, this idea of, uh, uh, of resurrection wasn't unheard of, and they could have imagined Herod believing in somebody um, coming back from the dead. You have stories of, of uh, you know, when Jesus is uh, crucified in the, the book of Matthew, the, the, the tombs of the saints are emptied out and the saints start walking the streets of Jerusalem and stuff like that. People believe these things, you know. Uh, there were other resurrection stories in other pagan religions. I mean, people were prepared to believe this. So actually, I think it's not completely implausible that Paul might have been able to sort of sell the idea uh, of the resurrection uh, without having to appeal to, to resurrection, uh, to evidence for resurrection. It might have just sort of been an idea that people could say, yeah, okay, if you tell me this guy was resurrected, you know, you know, um, yeah, what about it, you know? <laughs> and it, it <laughs> tell me about him. <laughs> it would have been weird, though, for a, for a Messiah to be considered killed and resurrected, though. I'm, from what I understand in Jewish theology, resurrection is something preserved for... Uh, the end of days or the last judgment. So for someone to be resurrected from the dead beforehand, wouldn't it be uh, rather uh, weird? And to speak about the uh, the, the verse in uh, Matthew that you cited where uh, the dead are coming back, there have been some scholars, uh, Mike Lacana is one of them, who actually suggested that that's uh, not meant to be taken literally, but more along the lines of a piece of apocalyptic literature, uh, although there are people who disagree yeah. Yeah, no, no, that might be so, but the the point is, like, you know, if if you have a character like Herod, for instance, mm -hmm. right, who's you know, you know, contemporary of well, yeah, contemporary of uh, um, of Jesus, and and you know, he hears that that miracles are happening, and he thinks, oh, John the Baptist, could he have come back from the dead? I mean, well, look, it doesn't matter what they thought a Messiah was was going to to do, whether the Messiah could, was going to die. Uh, prematurely, and that he would come back to the dead. That, that's that's irrelevant. The point is, according to the Gospels themselves, Jews of that period, and we don't have to trust the Gospels on this point. But but if you trust the Gospels on this point, Jews at that time in Jerusalem believed that people could just come back from the dead. 
That's, that, that is what they believed. Uh, you know, and there are other stories like this. And of course, you have all these stories of Jesus raising people from the dead. Uh, and then, of course, there's the story in Matthew, even if you want to take that uh, symbolically, although uh, many Christians don't. Um, you know, and I, I imagine Calvinists don't. Uh, but you know, the, the point is right there in the text, this idea of people coming back from the, from the dead is sort of not off the wall. It might have been puzzling to them that a Messiah could do this. That might have been a, an intellectual obstacle that they had to get over. Uh, that might have violated their, their uh, expectations of, of what the concept Messiah meant. But the concept of resurrection wouldn't have been, you know, wouldn't strike them as weird the way it strikes us as weird in the modern day. Yeah, and that's exactly kind of what you see Paul addressing is those exact things. You know, he's not arguing evidentially one way or another, or doing apologetics for a resurrection. He's, um, I mean, you, he mentioned uh, Epicurus mentioned um, the one of the main stumbling blocks would have been something like the Messiah issue. Well, I think that's what you do see him kind of addressing in Romans. You know, like I said earlier, there was a good Jewish audience there. I mean, when he goes into spill about how the God Christ is the second Adam and he had to do this and that. I mean, that that could. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if his point was to argue for what the definition of a Messiah there, but he his prerogative generally is to make a theological case as opposed to uh, any kind of uh, evidential cases. And there's, right. and there's a difference generally between uh, the concept of a resurrection, the concept of coming back from the dead, uh, although we might tend to associate these two as being one and the same. For example, take the story of Lazarus, where Jesus brings him back from the dead. Uh, Lazarus's body wasn't uh, glorified in any way. It would be that he would just die another time. And with John the Baptist, it, Herod could have been interpreting that not as a resurrection, but merely as, I'm not sure if he uses the term resurrection, but... He could have been interpreting that as just merely um, John the Baptist coming back from the dead, not necessarily being resurrected in a new glorified or spiritually fulfilled body. So I think there's also that kind of digression to uh, contemplate over as well. Yeah, but the, the, the whole glorified body type of resurrection is not what most people thought about the word. I mean, he could have used the word resurrection and it wouldn't have mattered because they didn't use the term resurrection only to apply the way that Paul tries to, to say Jesus was resurrected, right? He, he admits that it's a different kind of resurrection, and he, he goes out of his way on multiple occasions to talk about how you know, Christ's body is glorified, and this is the kind of resurrection body we're going to have, you know? Yeah, in any case, the point is not what, you know, uh, about arguing, you know, whether something was a body was resuscitated or resurrected, the point is people thought people could come back from the dead. Yeah. So it might not have been a very hard sell for Paul okay, to say true. Jesus came back from the dead. He might not have had to argue evidentially. People were prepared to swallow that. All kinds of people, Jews and 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 pagan uh, alike, just believe these kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, and if they you believe, look at um... believe people and gods could come back. Yeah, and if you look at like um, some of the early apologetics, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but he he wrote one of the the early what what some people would call apologetic works against um, pagan religions, and and he stayed on this point of of it's not a matter of of proving that you know Jesus physically resurrected for this and that reason, or or or, or arguing about you know presuppositionalism or anything like that. His it's all comparative studies between. Um, you know, comparing Christ to the pagan myth, you know, saying these are the points of agreements, you know, between our God and your God, and these are the points of differentiation, and this is where you should take it seriously, right? Yeah, I think that's Irenaeus you're thinking of. Could that be him? It's, I, I, I want to say it started with a J. I don't, I don't think it was Irenaeus. Uh, Justin Martyr? Oh, Justin, Justin Martyr. Martyr. That's who yeah. it is. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I thought you meant against heresies or something like that. 
that'd be that would be Aranace. Uh, although Aranace, I think in against Heresies was mostly going against the Gnostics, and that one not really. I'm not sure. Yeah. Pagans. I I don't think he did, but I think that was mainly targeted against the Gnostics. That's right. Cool. Um. Well, are we? Um. We kind of argued ourselves, or we kind of moved away a little bit from uh, presup, uh, specifically. I think. And yeah. Kind of moved into Just a bit. Yeah. We are waxing evidentialism right now. Cool. Well, yeah. It's not a, not a problem. Okay. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote here. I kind of it's gonna be kind of uh, I, I'm gonna eliminate some of the a little bit of a middle part here, but uh, I think you guys have got the uh, the gist of it, and then I'll I'll, I'll get you guys' response to it. Um. Uh, the Christian cannot relinquish his submission to God's authority in order to reason upon some alleged neutral ground. God makes a radical demand on the believer's life, which involves never demanding proof of God or trying him. Um, rather, he begins by submitting to the truth of God, preferring to view every man as a liar if he contradicts truthfulness, God's truthfulness or not. Um, so that's that's where I'll, where I'll cut it out there. Now, uh, I was going to get you guys' uh, response to it. Um, it's... It's it's an interesting way of looking at it, um, but it's it's uh, I don't know. It, it strikes me as odd that God makes this radical demand on the believer um, for never demanding proof of God. Um, I, I think in the middle there, he he puts um, he says the incarnate Son would not put God to the test, but rather relied upon the inscripturated Word, um, and he cites Matthew four, which I'm assuming is the temptation in the wilderness by. Um, Satan, right, of Jesus, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I, yeah, that's I never correct. Yeah. So, I mean, he's he's pointing out that, that Jesus never, um, he, he's, he, he never would put God to the test and rather relied upon an inscripturated word. Um, is that the example that, I mean, is it really even right to kind of use Jesus as the example of someone who would argue for is he, I mean, is he arguing against evidentialism at all, or, or putting God to any sort of test, or, or asking him per, to provide any sort of evidence? Yeah, I think he is. Because it seems like, yeah, he, it's, it's a much more blanket statement than just the resurrection, which is sort of what I had assumed this, this essay is about. But it seems like he's making much broader statements anyways. Yeah, he thinks there's no such thing as evidence or neutral ground. There's, there, you know, you, you know, it is only within the context or within the worldview of Christianity... Uh, that the very concept of evidence can make sense. There, there is no, there is no epistemic position on which you can evaluate any evidence. Evidence doesn't even mean anything, as far as uh, Bonson uh, and other presuppositionists are concerned, outside of the context of Christianity. So, you know, God has has set things up such that, you know, there's there's just no way to to evaluate whether or not He exists. From some neutral perspective, that just does, that perspective does not exist. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's even a, a like almost almost deeper where he's I mean he's saying right after he says no one can demand proof of God and the servant of the Lord should never give in to any such demand and obviously neither should he suggest that such a demand be made by the unbeliever. Um, so he, I mean he's he's going as far as to say, um, y you know, there is no there's no way you could properly demand proof of God uh, in, in any in any circumstance, um, and that uh, you know to so I mean in in that way isn't he almost um, destroying his own here? Um, like I don't I don't necessarily think that he's he's 
um, giving us proof, um, but I think that he's giving us reasons to uh, believe as he does, right? And isn't that isn't that sort of destroying his own argument that um, that we we should uh, that we can't demand proof from God? I mean, isn't the if you're saying that all facts lead to God, isn't that isn't that um, well, I guess that's not demanding, but um, all facts presuppose God is is it might be the better way to say it, right? And, I I Go ahead. I was just going to say, I found it odd that someone would take this position, whereas Paul would say, "Test everything and hold on to the good." But <laughs> just, a, uh, just out of clarification. But I think it's not really destroying his own position because he's not necessarily arguing for a specific uh, worldview or theological worldview, but mostly for a specific style of presenting said worldview. And I think you, I think that is worthy of giving evidence, but not necessarily for the main thing. It's not necessarily about. Uh, the the truth of the matter, but necessarily the presentation of the truth of the matter that uh, he's giving evidence for. Hmm. Um, it, it's it, kind of it's kind of like this. Uh, imagine if you're trying to make a sales pitch, and uh, somebody essentially, and uh, you have two salesmen arguing back and forth over what's the best way in which to give uh, in which to sell a car. One salesman uh, says you should use my method. And the other salesman says, "Yeah, but your method uh, comes with uh, with uh, with a lot of drawback here, here, and here because I feel that because of I feel our case is weak. However, we should use my method. Now, let's say the second salesman goes on to use the exact same pitch to sell his sale instead of the car directly. He might say, "Well, this is different because I'm selling you." A specific way to see things. We're not selling a car. Uh, using uh, your method is good pertaining to this, but not necessarily to pertaining the car. So I think uh, what Bonson is trying to get at is, while evidence is good for uh, arguing over a specific methodology or a specific way of presentation, it's not good for arguing over the main fact of the matter. Like uh, it's like trying to apply the scientific method as a way of deciding what your favorite ice cream is. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I just not I'm not sure if I if I understand where he's where he's getting that it's that it's improper to demand evidence. Um I I just don't I just don't understand. I mean, if if God has the evidence there and it is provided, um it, is it just the fact that I'm the judge that I'm being placed in the, in the position of, of making the judgment for myself that's the problem yeah so that's one thing yeah that's, that's, that's part the, of it yeah yeah the, the, go ahead, go ahead uh, Elijah I've got something to say but go, please go ahead okay yeah um, the issue is is uh, first of all you have to understand that, that according to uh, and and if you've ever talked to presuppositionalists you've heard this um, is that one of the, the the underlying assumptions is that that everyone already knows God exists anyway, right? He's already revealed himself to them in their hearts. They, they know that he's there. And, and when it comes to the, the impropriety of, of, our, of using evidence, what he's basically saying is we're, we are these tiny pipsqueak little creatures. We just don't have the right to um, – and he's, he, you know, he makes different arguments of why you shouldn't use evidence, right? But this is one of them. We don't have the right to judge the existence of God. We just don't have that right. And, and just because some unbeliever or supposed unbeliever, because he's not really an unbeliever, comes to us and says, um, well, I, I can't uh, accept your faith for this or that reason, even if they're, they're doing it perfectly in a perfectly civil way, it's still they don't have the right to judge God's existence based on anything. See what I'm saying? 
I think I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, well, there's a couple ahead, of please. Okay. Well, the the the, the first point uh, that I was going to make was that the point that I made earlier that it's as far as he sees it, it's only within the Christian worldview that evidence is even possible. Um, so you have to presuppose the truth of Christianity before you can utilize and and talk about evidence. Uh, the other thing is that you are you have no business um, putting God on trial. Um, there's no, you, you know, the autonomous uh, reason cannot be uh, uh, relied upon. You're, there is no such thing as autonomous reason. Uh, reason uh, that is not constrained uh, by, uh, well, a regenerated spirit or regenerating spirit is just not going to um, construe evidence properly. Uh, and then there's the the uh, the, the point that. Uh, Elijah just mentioned about everybody already knows that Christian that God exists, uh, and now where it's a little funny is well, yeah, but not everyone knows that the resurrection happened, which is what we're talking about here. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, how well that argument works or not. I, I my mind's not made up there. Like what what they would say. I mean. Presumably, they don't say they don't think Calvinists don't think that everyone believes that the resurrection no, happened, no, no. right? Right? No, no. Um, what what they basically say is that um, you have enough evidence to be um, to know that you're a sinner, like you know in your heart that you're a sinner, that there is a God out there that has, um, and that you have you are not right with Him, and therefore, whatever you do in your life, whatever whatever, even if you you live somewhere you've never even heard of Christianity, whatever you're doing. If you do something wrong, you know you're doing something wrong, and not just morally wrong, but wrong against the God that you already know exists. So that's enough to get you sent to hell alone right there. What they then say is that it, for anyone who has ever heard, once you hear the gospel in any form, immediately there's going to be an internal verification there to where you're going to recognize this God you already knew existed in that preaching. You see what I'm saying? So they don't they don't think that yeah. everybody knows okay. the resurrection is true. They think that everybody who once they hear the gospel, and that's why you know you you'll hear people say things like you know just just from coming into this conversation with me, you're you're making things worse for yourself because now you have this much more to be condemned over because I've given you all this uh, this knowledge that you may not have had before. So you're you're going to be you know in a in a hotter part of hell now than you would have been before you talked to me, right? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I know it's uh it's it's almost discourages you from looking into it, right? And I think that's that's sort of almost part of it. Yeah, um, and actually there are uh, I want to say there are actually um, radical Calvinists, um, a few sects that will say that we should not even be doing evangelism for this reason. They're um, I think they're part of the hyper Calvinist. Yeah, that's the word hyper Calvinist. Huh. Hyper Calvinism is its own uh, form of crazy. There's actually a I. We are actually going over this in one of the Christian forums I was a part of. It's our Christianity on Reddit. One of them was actually telling me of a story of a small town where they have a hyper-Calvinistic uh, church, and apparently, in apparently, uh, this church believes that unless you have some kind of vision from God, like a dream, you knew you weren't part of the elect. In fact, it caused so much heartache and strain. Uh, one person ended up committing suicide, if I'm not mistaken. Well, if mm. I remember the story. Now, I'm not saying this story is true, but. I could imagine how such party could uh, really uh, harm a person. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know what what to make of of a worldview that denies 
facts, right? Um, or that, or seems to think that facts aren't the the authoritative uh, indicator of what's actually going on. Um, it, it's, it's not just, that he, it doesn't well, deny facts, though. Well, I, I don't mean that. I, I, sorry, I, uh, maybe I'm... That's actually the opposite. What, what he's saying is, in fact, that we have a misconception as to what a fact actually is. Right. Um, it, it's... it's he would he would say you as an atheist are denying facts, not not us, and, and in fact denying the very concept of facts by by thinking that God does not exist. I don't mean I don't mean facts as in um, the the uh, existence of them. I mean the, the facts as an effective uh, apologetics tool. Um, ah. When when you can't I mean when you can't use facts anymore, isn't there? You're sort of trying to give them a, an emotional impression or an experiential impression. Um, and it, it, that's very that's very difficult to do um, as as an apologetic means. I, I'm 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 confused about why they would tie their hands like that. Is it is it um, a defense mechanism or like is is it a way of keeping us away from the facts um, from examining them? Well, or it might be it might be this like the, as they see it, um, you and I are confused about uh, about facts. Uh, and w most specifically, we're confused uh, here about apologetics. You and I think that fa that apologetics has to be done by appeal to evidence. And of course, his point here is precisely no, no, that's confused. That that's where your confusion is. In fact, he, I mean, this is addressed to other apologists. It's not even addressed to us uh, as atheists uh, in this room. Um, you know, it's addressed to his fellow. Uh, apologists and would-be apologists, you know, you're you're confused about what you think apologetics is. If you think that it's about convincing other people by pointing to some facts, you're you're confused about um, what a fact is, and you're deeply confused about the, the the efficacy of this. That's not how it works. That's not how conversion works. Um, there's there's there isn't any neutral ground where you can just sort of point to this and people go, oh right, I get it, you know. Uh, and even if you did, there are these terrible methodological problems. You know, you're never going to. Well, I don't want to look at, too far ahead here, but you know, there are the methodological problems, the uh, these obstacles that are that he's going to mention uh, shortly, where that that are just going to make it Im impossible um, to convincingly um, produce the the kind of conviction that a believer has to have uh, using the sort of evidence as we normally think of it, like historical evidence for the resurrection and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that's, 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 a, that's a valuable point. I think we're kind of moving towards the, the methodological problems that he's, he's going to bring up here. Um, the, um, the one thing I did want to kind of get in there is um, at one point he says, um, the apostles were certainly not afraid of evidence, yet we noticed that they never argued on the basis of it. They preached the resurrection without feeling any need to prove to the skeptics. They unashamedly appealed to it as fact. Um, I, was, I was curious about uh, what you thought about that, Elijah. Um, is that your impression of, the, of all the, uh, the apostles? Well, I certainly don't think that they, uh, they were... They were using, like we were talking about earlier, they weren't making an evidential case for the resurrection by any means. But um, to say that they unashamedly just assumed it, that they never tried to convince anybody that, that at least that, that Christianity was, or that the that the resurrection means something to them, I, I'm not so sure. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't it, know what they did. We don't know how they preached. Well, we have a we have we know a, they, they know what's going on. 
you know, there were speaking in tongues, there were miracles, there was, you know, healings, resurrections. That's what, I mean, according to Acts, there's like miracles happening all over the place. Paul, um, you know, you know, well, we know a little bit about what he was doing there, but it doesn't seem to have been any kind of evidentialism. But we don't know that he just nakedly assumed the, uh, the, uh, the resurrection as a fact. He might have. It's not impossible, but we don't know. Like it just seems to me, we know almost nothing about how they went around preaching this stuff and convincing um, skeptics and non-believers. Am I wrong about this? I mean, I, I, I'd like to know that I'm wrong about this. Actually, I... um, yeah, no, he didn't. They didn't. Again, they, he wasn't arguing for. They weren't. The, 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 what we do have, what little we have, which is virtually nothing, like you say, um, there's not an argument for the resurrection as an occurrence that actually happened. It is a. It is. I mean, if you look at Acts two, um, you do have some preaching going on, right? And and I mean, even though he's speaking to people that you know had just presumably been you know or, or seen, seen seen the speaking in tongues and heard what that meant. So they had this sort of evidence in front of him anyway. He still is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Bible and saying, hey, in the last days, God says this and that will happen, right? And here it is happening right before your eyes. And then uh, he, he immediately goes into another prophecy having to do with Jesus from the Bible. So, I mean, it, it is arguing evidentially in the sense that it's appealing to what they already know um, about the Bible, what, they already know, what their worldview already has in it, but it's not arguing for the resurrection. Yeah, it's a theological argument based on scripture. I mean, it, it sounds to me like he's discovering the Jesus of Christianity. The, the, he, he's, he's discovering the Christ uh, in scripture, and he's point. You know, you know, he, 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 whenever he keeps saying, you know, according to scripture, you know, it's as if he's saying, as we discovered, as was revealed in scripture. It doesn't seem to me as if he's always as if he's saying, oh, well, you know, scripture corroborates what we know. It, it really sounds as if he's pointing to scripture. As the evidence, and this sounds to me like a theological case, not an evidentiary case. Yeah, but I do think he's quoting it for the sake of of you. I mean, it's 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 still that I I maybe that's just I'm using the word wrong. I would still consider that to be technically an evidential evidentiary. No, case. it is. No, 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 no. No, right. You're right. Actually, no, you're absolutely right. Actually, Elijah, because I, I'm construing uh, an evidentiary evidentiary argument here too narrowly. I'm thinking of it the way. Mike Lycona and Gary Habermas and William Lane Craig do it in terms of a historical argument, and that's too narrow a definition of of an evidential argument. It obviously can include more, and and you're absolutely right. I stand corrected. Yeah, I mean the whole idea is is that you know you know what these passages say already. You know he like like you said he's trying to he is he's appeal he is sort of appealing to them not not on. I hesitate to use the word neutral ground, but he's he's giving them the benefit of a doubt as being able to see these um, connections. You see what I mean? Yeah, well, he's appealing to common ground there, which is sort of what we mean by neutral ground most of the time. We're talking about shared assumptions and, and shared background beliefs. That That's usually what we mean when we talk about neutral ground. We don't really mean an epistemologically neutral position. You know, such a thing probably doesn't exist. You know, I, I can't make sense of such a concept myself. Mm. I think Gibran shares that view as well. But, That's correct. Um, yeah. But uh, most philosophers today um, sort of see it that way. But uh, you know, if that's the case, then I don't see why Bonson has to object. I mean, if 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 what you're saying is right, Elijah, and I, I think you're right, you're convincing me here uh, um, that he he was Paul was using uh, 
a form of evidentialism based on shared uh, beliefs and a shared value uh, based on what's in the scriptures, um, then this is a form of evidentialism. Uh, and that those are just you know sound. I don't see what else we could mean by that. I mean on the basis of things you both agree in common and hope that you move the person over from uh, from their side to your side by appeal to things that you all both agree on to begin with. But that's precisely the move that Bonson wants to block. He doesn't right, yeah. want people doing that. And just 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 for the record, um, uh, I may have misspoke earlier, but that was actually uh, Peter preaching, not Paul. In Acts, you mean? Yeah, in Acts two, yes. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think uh, that kind of brings us right up to um, the uh, the methodological problems that. Did we lose John? Uh, I'm still here. Uh, you guys? No, how, I can how are you hear doing? John. Yeah, I can hear him. We might be losing you, buddy. Yeah, you've been you were uh, breaking up a little bit during that last little thing. Cool. So, um, yeah, uh, methodological problems which afflict the argument. Um, Bonson kind of immediately he goes into um, which I think is pretty pretty standard for for presupposition. Um, maybe I'll just read this out here. Um, we note immediately that an inductive or historical argument rests for its validity on the premise of uniformity, past and present, in nature. This makes possible a consideration of an analogy of circumstance. Yet the very point which the evidentialist is trying to prove is that of a miracle, i.e. discontinuity. So he is enmeshed in using a principle of continuity to establish the truth of a discontinuity. Yeah, I actually disagree with Bonson here pretty strongly. Um, I do too. I was hoping that you guys could clear this up for me because I had never understood the problem here. I think he's completely wrong. I mean, the, the, shall I make the case for him though? Before oh, you, feel free. Feel that okay. would be just, great just, for me. Before yeah. before we take we take it apart, let's 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 sort of make the uh, the case here. Okay, uh, what what he's arguing here is, um, when you are arguing, um, evidentially, for something, you are appealing to. Uh, people's beliefs about reality, and their beliefs about reality are, are inductively based beliefs. They're, um, they're, you know, they're, they're. You're looking at the world, and um, you're assuming that the world follows uh, regularities. That there is a uniformity in the world, uh, and so there's predictability. So, you know, how do I convince you that you know? All crows are black. Well, I point to the fact that every crow that we've ever found is black. Let's say hypothetically. Or how do I convince you that that the the beating of a heart is necessary um, for uh, for an, um, a mammal to be alive? Well, every living mammal we've ever seen um, has had a uh, a beating heart, um, and uh, every dead animal has had a non-beating heart. Right. So you're looking to sort of regularities in nature, and I. If, if I'm not mistaken, I've actually stolen that example from Gibran. Yes. From, uh, an essay he's written. Uh, sorry about that. Um, no, it's fine. I might have got amused. The first example that came to mind. It came to my mind. I wonder where I got it. I think it's because um, it's a good example. That's right. Well, it's an excellent example. Actually, you stated it better than I did, but uh, you, you had it properly qualified. In any case, so the idea is that there are these regularities. There's uniformity of nature, um, and but a miracle, by definition, is a violation of that uniformity. You can't point to regu established regularities in nature 
because a miracle is an exception to that. It's you know, it, it's a miracle. God has sort of intervened in the natural world and has done something different that might otherwise have happened. Um, and consequently, how are you going to argue evidentially on the assumption of uh, inductive uniformities in nature for something that is not a uniformity of nature? It's a discontinuity of nature. So he, his argument is that you're arguing against yourself. You're, you're, you're literally at odds with yourself trying to argue evidentially for a miracle. You can't argue evidentially for a miracle. Okay, um, that, I think that is the argument. But And if anyone can clarify it or state it better, please go ahead. It's very similar to David Hume's uh, Case Against Miracles, where essentially he says, um, I'll even paraphrase uh, Barterman, because I think he tries to capture it, and he does it fairly well. History is about finding the most possible thing that happened, whereas a miracle presupposes the most impossible thing that happened. Therefore, the, it could, therefore, because a miracle is the least possible thing, it's the least historical. It cannot be uh, considered historically possible at all. Also, it also goes to his case for induction. Uh, the only, just because we uh, say that all crows are we have to, in order to establish that crows are black, we have to look to all crows, and because we the sample that we have um, is uh, is big, no matter how big you put it, there's oh there could always be a chance of an outlier outside of it. So we can never say that all crows are black, but all crows that we've ever encountered just happen to be. Are black, so I, so in terms of arguing for the resurrection, to say that one person came back from the dead is to say that uh, there's a sample that's highly improbable, the most improbable. Therefore, you couldn't posit it. So he said, so Bonson is essentially saying that because the skeptic is coming in with that kind of worldview, then no matter what you say, they're not going to accept it. What I I think I agree with Bonson. Uh, about is I think that arguing evidentially for the resurrection is a massive waste of time. It's never ever going to work. Convincing a real skeptic that 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 the resurrection occurred, it's just not going to happen. Any skeptic who's genuinely skeptical about things, oh, sorry, phone, but uh, someone else will probably get that. Um, <laughs> um, it's not going to work just because, as you as you say, uh, it it is there. It is always more reasonable to posit the idea that it there's a there is a natural explanation than to assume a supernatural explanation. Um, it, or it's not necessarily more reasonable to, but it's certainly the thing the skeptic will do. Uh, while I say, well, there could be there there's there's probably a natural a naturalistic explanation for that, and they may attempt to even offer one. So I, I agree with you that it's that it's an absolute waste of time. Or at least I agree with Bonson. I don't I don't know if you you believe that as well. Um, but I think the problem with Bonson's argument here. I think it's I think it's a a really poor one. Um, what he's missing is that actually, I mean, the, what they're doing is they're relying on the uniformity of nature. Otherwise, they're they're relying on the, the uniformity of nature to deliver that evidence to them. But the evidence itself, really, they're they're relying on induction to justify their use of a certain piece of evidence. Um, but they're not that that. There's nothing contradictory about that. There's nothing contradictory about it at all. And so I, I don't think this is a good argument for him. Well, here, here's a way to sort of make sense of it. I mean, um, if if we lived in the world of the Greek pantheon and the sort of the Greco-Roman gods, let's say, you know, Zeus and Hera and Apollo and all that were sort of marching around and fornicating with people and producing demigods and performing miracles all over the place and you could propitiate them and you could you know, very 
obviously, you know, stop a storm and to get your ships uh, out to sea when you wanted to. If you could sort of control nature by propitiating the gods and appeasing them and ingratiating yourself to them and stuff like that, and if by ignoring them, you know, all hell broke loose in your life because you were not offering the proper ritual sacrifices and stuff like that. If, you know, if there was a kind of a, a, a science of, uh, of, uh, of, of worship um, and interaction with such gods, then I think you could make a kind of good inductive uh, argument here. But we're not in that position. That the God of, uh, of the Bible is not that kind of God uh, where you, know, you just pray and then things happen and materialize. So consequently, um, uh, if anyone reports a miracle, you know, what are the odds that it, that it actually did happen? There's always a, a, another interpretation that you could give. One interpretation is coincidence or luck, or maybe someone just made up a story or something like that. Maybe someone got confused about what the facts were. You know, uh, Hume's famous argument about um, the virgin birth is, you know, is it more likely that, that this, uh, that, you know, that, that a woman gave uh, birth, uh, well, you know, um, was you know, conceived when she was a virgin, or that a Jewish minx just lied? You know, what's more likely, right? So that's the that that's the problem. Um, uh, but well, but that is not. I mean, I I agree that it's very hard to 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 to. to, to, to demonstrate that it occurred, but Bonson's complaint that using induction to demonstrate a flaw or a, a, a discontinuity in nature, that I think is a poor argument. I agree that what you said, I, I would agree with that. You, it's, it's very hard to demonstrate that. It's, uh, a skeptic is always going to doubt it. There, there is almost always going to be another explanation. It's almost impossible to really, almost if not entirely impossible, to, 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 to demonstrate that a miracle occurred. But I don't think it's self-contradictory to try to do it. It's just not going to be effective. Um, I think there's a bit of a problem in terms of how he's factoring in probability here. Um, uh, before coming into this, I actually wanted to look into a, in, a debate that went on in my uh, contemporary philosophy of uh, religion uh, study book. Uh, there was a debate that went on between uh, uh, Stephen T. Davis and Michael Martin, where and they discussed the application of Bayes' theorem. Now, I'm not going to simply just uh, list up Bayes' theorem um, right now because it's rather complex, but essentially what they want to do is actually say, given our background, uh, uh, given the probability of our uh, background knowledge, um, and also given the probability of um, the, res the resurrection happening, it always has to be in, it always has to be compared to the pro to the Opposing antithesis. So let's just. So as long. So it doesn't really matter. So the point is, it doesn't really matter that the resurrection is the least likely thing possible. But it, what matters is that the resurrection is less unlikely, given as opposed to uh, the alternative thesis given. So the Christian. So essentially, what Myers tries to argue is that, well, the Christian could admit that. Um, for his hypothesis to work, there has to be a given amount of background evidence. However, because, however, the um, given that background evidence, he can construe it as being at least more probable than the than the opposing thesis, which has a naturalistic background knowledge and has its own framework. For let's take, uh, for example, um, the atheist who might argue, I'll go with the popular one, that the apostles stole Jesus from the tomb. Um, 
Now, uh, this would uh, now the Christian could argue, well, that's really unlikely to happen given your background knowledge on the natural. I'll I'll admit your background on the natural is true, but given that but given that, what follows is the fact that you're expecting a group of people to go against Roman soldiers to uh, defy, uh, basically make a a prevalent argument against that. So the Christian doesn't necessarily have to uh, defend his thesis as being the most likely to happen, but being more likely than not compared to the alternative well, hypothesis. That, is, that so, is the most likely to happen, though. Yeah. We are saying yeah. you, you're going to have to demonstrate that it is more likely than every other hypothesis. And even then, you just said that it's more likely. It doesn't, doesn't mean it's more probable, true, though. More probable as opposed to the alternative thesis. Yeah. Given, well, more probable and more likely are the same thing, right? Uh, not yeah. necessarily. For some, for example, a miracle could be highly improbable, but at the same time, it just has to be more prob. It has to be more likely, given uh, more likely with uh, than uh, just has to be more likely compared to the opponent's thesis, which he just has to say. No, no, but that's to make it the most probable. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be more probable than all other possibilities combined, right? It just has to be more probable than any other single one. I think you're equivocating likely and probable, and then using that equivocated term in two different senses here. I see. Oh, could be that. Uh, well, I was trying to find a, a passage I read earlier. Uh, basically, these are 20 pages. So I'm, I'm essentially trying to summarize something that's far too long to summarize, and I yeah. think that. But, um, and I think that's a bit hard on my case, so um, I'm just going to. Uh, I'm just going to skip this uh, piece because I really just tried to delve into it without without uh, too much prepping. Well, well I mean, to be base theorem is really really hard anyway. Yeah, it is. I, I do have a question um, because I, it, I'm I'm this is not my strong suit here. I, does um um. How important is it that that the resurrection of Jesus or to Bonson's argument here? How important is it that it is an actual miracle and not just a a thing that has only occurred one time? Because I I mean, it, if if Jesus had rose naturally or, or if there was a natural resurrection or some kind or it, just a resurrection, we don't know if it was a miracle, something that literally invaded nature in such a way to to almost. Well, I'm not gonna go there, but um, like, is it is it is it vital that this is an actual miracle, something from beyond the natural, to the argument, or not, or is it I just think, that it's a rare occurrence or a one-time occurrence? I think it has. I think, to I think be it vital. is. I think, it, I think it has to be vital. Be, I think it would be vital, and not even just it has to be supernatural over natural, but it would have to be a supernatural occurrence from God Himself, because you can make the right. argument that yes, it was supernatural, but it was done by a group of demons through sorcery, and I actually have an Orthodox Jewish friend I met online who does take that position. Um, that uh, because it uh, that uh, it was done through sorcery, not necessarily through the work of God. So for Bonson, he'd have to not only argue that it was supernatural, but it was supernatural pertaining to the work of God Himself. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it, it, it's the thesis here of the resurrection is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus didn't rise raise Himself from the dead. Right, and it wasn't just oh well, you know, every ten thousand years or so, um, a crucified person comes back to life, and that's just the way nature is. You know, if you wait yeah. another ten thousand years, it'll happen again. 
you know, like that that could be a law of nature that it's just such an infrequent thing that we've <laughs> we've ne we've only seen one instance of it, you know, and a whole religion rose around it, right? Yeah. And, you know, Bonson's religion would be destroyed if that were the case. If you I'm could, just it, right. I'm sorry, you can go ahead and finish. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, so, I mean, if that were the case, that would be the end of Christianity. If we could demonstrate that, hey, we just found, you know, physics, physicists just discovered this weird principle. You know, it's the, it's just the darndest thing, you know. Um, sure. You know, every once in a while, you know, something like this happens, you know, uh, a, uh, uh, a, you know, uh, a cat turns into a flower right in front of everybody, and every once in a while, a dead person comes back to life. Um, you know, and that's just the way nature is. And this happens, you know, you know, every once in a while, every once in a very long while. Now, if that were just a feature of nature, a brute fact of nature, that would be the the end of the religion, right? As right. Well, if it's a if it's a naturalistic thing, though, think about it like this: if it's a naturalistic thing, then it's like basing a religion off of an instance of the remission of cancer. Sure. Um, it's extraordinary. It might be extraordinarily rare, but but it has to be impossible for it to be supernatural. Yeah, yeah. Well, it I would mean, be yeah. mundane even though it was rare. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're 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 both right about all that. But mine, I think I was asking more specifically about this particular um, issue of probability. Um, how? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that that's what that's what I'm asking about. Um, and uh, if he is, how important is it to his argument about probability that? This was not just whatever you want to call it. It could be if it was a natural one-time occurrence or just a one-time occurrence that was not miraculous in some way. Does it matter to this argument that it is it crucial that this was something supernatural? Um, you mean because well, I mean, well, the issue of a miracle is a lot of people say that they're just impossible anyway because it's just nonsensical. It undermine it, that a miracle, the existence of miracles undermines. Um, Uniformity of nature, anyway. I'm just curious how related that is to this. Uh, Elijah, do you, I mean, I might be mischaracterizing what you're saying, but are you are you saying essentially? Are you asking um, how crucial is it to the calculation? Um, how are they how are they determining the difference between a naturalistic and a supernaturalistic uh, resurrection? And how are they calculating the probability of demon sorcery versus God resurrection? No, no, no. Okay, no, no, so no. you're asking something else. I see. Yeah, I'm asking a much more simple question. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah, probability is generally um, the uh, favorable occurrence over the total amount of opportunities, or um, another way of putting it is, is um, you know, the, the the favorable outcomes over the total possible outcomes. Um, so you could you could look at it like that way. Now, it, with with the I, I understand what you're saying here, um, Elijah, um, because it, because he says it's a um, it's a particular occurrence, or it's it's a it's a discontinuity in the in the in the uh, in the in the natural occurrence, right? Um, but but basically, probability can just deal with the amount of occurrences plus the amount of uh, favorable outcomes. So even if there is only one known occurrence, the and that that outcome came out the way that you um, that you thought it would, then the probability of that thing is a hundred percent. So it, it's it's sort of an odd uh, it's sort of odd because he in in some ways he's saying um, that the probability can't be predicated on a per particular occurrence but it can be calculated. Um, so it, in some ways he's saying it's not proper to base probabilities on a single event, but I don't think that it eliminates it from being able to make that calculation. And in fact, if right. he had if he had the fact of the one occurrence, um, that would make it a hundred percent. Uh, factual, you know, it, it would also help his case. Um, so it's it's sort of odd that he that he uh, 
eliminates it. But it's I, I can see his point though. Um, it, yeah. it is harder to argue for for miracles that way. Yeah, I just didn't know how much other uh, much more how, how much the 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 normal problems with with arguing for miracles existing were were being put into this. Uh, right, I think. I think I see what you're saying. I mean, the problem comes when you when you say that this is a one when you state that this is a one-time occurrence only. Yeah. That this can only happen one time. Now, when you say that, you do eliminate yourself from any possibility of predicting probability. Um, but if you if you're saying that it could it could happen again, um, maybe just not right away. You know, if it's if it's so exceedingly rare, then yes, um, then probability is possible to. to yeah. So. I guess just when I read when I read his section on this, I, I didn't see anywhere in it, and unless I missed it, where he, um, where it needed to be miraculous to still be impossible to argue for, as long as it was a one-time occurrence. That's my problem, and it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it, either way, but I was just curious, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I, I yeah. I better. I understand what you're what you're getting at now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um. Well, I mean, probability is a, it's a tough thing to grasp at the best of times, right? Um, and when you, when you start to add things like miracles or, or um, you know, changes to the uniformity of nature, there's, uh, there's serious problems with trying to predict what the probabilities may be. Um, and it, it has to do with the, the amount of favorable outcomes, right? Um, it, if, you, if you're saying that the, that the miracle is the favorable outcome uh, and it can only happen the one time, then it is a, it's a brute fact almost. I mean, it's, its probability goes to 100% um, or as close to it as it can get uh, in, in Bayesian theorem. But it's only because of the lack of any other, um, um, lack of any other options. Um, because the occurrence is only one time, there is no previous or total uh, amount of possible events right. in that particular um, scenario. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I understand. Right. Uh, um, I wonder if we could move on from this point a little bit. Is that okay? I think we should. Um, I was, yes. was going to move into, um, I mean, because you were, you were mentioning, uh, Elijah, that, that, I mean, what difference does it make if it is a miracle or not, right? Um, and even a little later, he does say, um, you know, the fact that Christ, rose, that Christ rose from the dead does not prove anything within a neutral framework of an evidentialist argument, because Christ's resurrection does not entail his deity, just as our future resurrection does not entail our divinity. Um, yeah, I think that's, that, I think that's, that's a really important less, part. Yeah, that's why he's getting to Lessing's ditch. I, I was curious about Lessing's ditch. Um, is that that's a fairly uh, a popular um, thing? Uh, is it is it fairly well known in in theology or? Um, well, it's sort of used more. Yeah, it's used in theology. It's used in um, in, in in philosophy. It's uh, he, Lessing was a uh, a kind of a, he was a man of letters of the. 18th, 17th centuries? I can't remember now. Um, a man of letters and a philosopher, and he had this... I mean, the, the upshot is basically, you know, um, in this case, even if you prove that, that Jesus rose from the dead, so what? All of the theological work, all of the theological claims are still not in evidence here. You haven't proven that God raised him from the dead. You haven't proven the the the, the, the soteriology, the, the salvific effect uh, and the redemptive character of, of his death and resurrection. Now, all of that is still, you know, there's this ditch you, ha you can't get across. I mean, so what if you discovered that a man came back from the dead? And what does that prove? Maybe that just happens. Let's say that it did just happen. 
you know? He won the you prize know? for being the millionth crucified person. I use, um, this is the example I, I, I will use. Um, let's just say, uh, theoretically, we um, developed a time machine. And um, we were able to go back to the precise moment, um, or a few hours maybe, before Jesus rose from the dead. And we, we hooked him up. We hooked his body. And let's just say he did rise from the dead, right? We hooked his body up to uh, all these devices, right? And, and we could measure exactly what happens from uh, his death to his, his moment of resurrection. We can, see, we, can, we can monitor what his body goes through, right? Um, we could, and, and then he rises. He rises, right? And we've we've got all this data now about how it happened. You know, we we've seen the cells regenerate. We still don't know that a miracle has occurred here. All we know is that this is a very fascinating thing that's happened. We 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 can we can understand it down to a certain point based on whatever science we have available at the time. But we can't. We cannot take a step further than that and say, okay, yeah, he's been miraculously raised from the dead. Yeah, it would be a singular event. It would be completely unexplained, possibly even inexplicable. But what we couldn't establish, what you couldn't observe, what you couldn't uh, establish from the fact that, that Jesus rose from the dead, if he rose from the dead, was that he was raised from the dead by God and that it had all these uh, you know, wonderful theological consequences. Um, so again this is uh, this I think is actually a, a, a very strong argument from Bonson on against evidentialism you can't get to the theology you want even if you could prove there was an empty tomb even if you could prove that there were post-resurrection appearances and that they were real and that people really saw them in flesh and blood even if you could prove that it wouldn't prove what you need to prove to give the, 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 the faithful Christian the conviction that he needs that's what you couldn't prove. That's that's Lessing's ditch. I actually think it's a good argument against pretty much all apologetics to some extent, um, it, uh, even presuppositionalism, because the presuppositionalist, I mean, the transcendental argument usually doesn't doesn't root itself too much in very specific theology. It usually only references a, a vague God. There's an exception or two. Uh, John F. Uh, was arguing with someone on his blog who argued that the only way to get to knowledge was through a Trinitarian God. Um, but but with a few exceptions, most of those arguments don't get you to any of the theological business any, I, I, either. Nor does the Kalam. Uh, the ontological, mm, not really. It gets you closer, you know. Yeah, much closer. Yeah, yeah. but it doesn't it doesn't give you get you to the God of Christianity. It gets you to, you know, something like a God of Abraham. Um, but you know, the God of Abraham isn't the God of Christianity. That you know. It's also the god of Islam and the god of the Jews. So, um, yeah. Theology is theology. The difference between theology and philosophy mostly consists of one being top down, uh, top down, which is theology, where you start from the idea and work your way down to everything else. Whereas philosophy tries to work from the ground up. Whereas you start like Descartes did, just ignore all knowledge and start from the beginning. I think, therefore, I am. I'll start from there and just keep going up and up and up. What, so when I think of people arguing for the existence of God, it's not It's on the basis of natural uh, theology or in philosophy in general. It's not necessarily for the God of uh, a specific religious group, uh, Muslims or Christians, but I would argue for the God of, to paraphrase um, Pascal, the God of the philosophers, not necessarily the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Um, I would like to make one thing there. I, I don't actually agree with you that philosophy is all um, bottom-up either. Uh, most of it really isn't. Um, that's the dream. That's the goal of philosophy is to be as bottom-up as possible. But uh, a lot of it is us trying to, to work top-down. It's, it's, us, it's us having these moral intuitions and trying to come up with a system for describing them. Um, I, I would argue that that's what a lot of philosophy is. But I, 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 I agree with your point. Uh, with that minor exception. Well, well you at least uh, can see that philosophy tries to work from the ground up. Much of it does. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, he kind of says, um, let's see here, the, the evidentialist may prove the resurrection of Jesus, but until he proves every other point of Christianity, then resurrection, then resurrection is an isolated, irrelevant, brute fact, which has no aid to our apologetical efforts. Right. Um, so, I mean, do you guys agree with that? I, it seemed odd to put it um, that they have, uh, the evidentialist will be forced to prove every other fact after the resurrection. It seems... That, that doesn't seem to follow to me, right? Um, I think I think if you were to, you know, if you were to prove a certain number of facts to me, um, I yeah. may I may believe it. Doesn't well, seem like you would have to prove it completely, anyways. Yeah, and I I'd also say that I don't think it's true that it doesn't aid his apologetic effort at all. I mean, I think it does aid it somewhat, but it certainly is not a complete apologetic. It's not it's not yeah. enough to convince someone completely. I, I was I went to borrow Bonson's term, um, and which is often repeated by presuppositionalists. There's a there's a difference between proof and persuasion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it wouldn't prove it, but uh, I I disagree that I. I um, the same that Gibran said. I, I don't. Th I do think this would aid in his apologetics in, in some way. I, I think I know a lot of people would be persuaded if the resurrection could be proven. It definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd be nine tenths of the way there. Oh yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't. You wouldn't have to. I mean, I don't think you. You'd necessarily even have to demonstrate that God resurrected Jesus for us to to to, to be significantly persuaded by it. If you just demonstrate that it happens, that would be a significant. Uh, yeah, nine tenths of the way there, as you say, Asi. It's it's very significant. Yeah, I mean, like even in the example I gave earlier of the time machine. I mean, if I was in that tomb and I and I monitor everything happening, I'm not going to walk out there of the tomb feeling the same about Christianity that I did when I walked in. That's for sure. Right. Because there, you'd probably uh, if we actually did do that, and if your spot, if your thought experiment went exactly as you did, uh, it would prove a whole lot more than we would have known before. Like the fact that there definitely was an. M a tomb that was empty, which is something that's more or less debated now. It would prove uh, the fact that there was a historical person named Jesus. It would prove uh, quite a few facts that we would have been shaky or uncertain about. So I, so there is something to be had uh, from at least attempting to do to do this. There's a funny thing going on here. You know, you sometimes hear um, uh, some atheists saying, "Well, you know, even if you prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead, you know." I, I wouldn't be a Christian that, you know, that, you know, you'd still have all your work cut out for you. And I, when I hear that, I think, like, really? Seriously? Like, if we went back in a time machine and we saw that this happened somehow, even if we could prove it that way, right, we could establish that that, that happened, you would feel no closer to, to believing in, in Christianity? I mean, like I said, I'd be nine-tenths of the way there if you, if you could do that. I mean, um, you know, I mean, it, it seems to me that what, what happens is people set the bar for persuasion extremely high at the yeah. level of proof and this is what Bonson I think is doing wrong here and this is why I think an evidentialist can just go what are you are you nuts why you know I need proof I you know surely evidence as good as this would would, would persuade people 
um, and, and it completely changed people's minds. Um, and so I, I think what, what happens is you can set the bar too high whether you're uh, an atheist and a skeptic or whether you're a believer. You can set the bar so high that now, you know, nothing but presuppositional, presuppositional, uh, sorry, presuppositionalism will do the trick. Uh, and I think that's where Bonson has gone here. He's, he's set things up where some evidence is worthless, no matter how much you have. Nothing short of proof is any good, right? So all the evidence in the world, no matter how good and persuasive it was, is, all this, is, is, is equivalent to no evidence at all. Uh, you've got to prove everything independently, and you have to prove it. And if you don't do that, well, it's all, all just junk. And, and this leaves him in a position where it's either, therefore, presuppositionalism or f absolute fideism. Just, I just believe out of pure blind faith. Pure blind faith, fideism is out of the question for him. So it's got to be presuppositionalism. And I think that's sort of the, the problem here, so you know, the, can setting I, the gonna, standard for evidence. So, go ahead. Uh, so what he's saying essentially is that that you can keep adding bits of rice, but you'll never get a heap of rice unless you put it all there at the beginning. Uh, might be a way of. Uh, yeah, it. that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's the Soridi's uh, paradox, uh, kind of uh, done backwards. <laughs> I think you, in a way, you almost have to commend Bonson because this is a very ballsy move, in my opinion. You know, he's he's basically cutting himself off from any uh, thing to fall back on if if his uh, transcendental argument fails. Right. Uh, I mean, I, that's kind of one thing I do want to point out. I mean, it does seem like he's he's kind of burning the bridge for him to get back to to any uh, evidential apologetic. Um, you know, even if he had a fact, it it does seem useless now, right? Um, he says, you know, the skeptic can accept the resurrection without flinching, for the resurrection is a simply a random fact until the Christian foundation has been placed under it. Um, furthermore, in the in the past, men like Ramaris and Paulus have utilized the same enlightened scientific methodology of that of that of evidentialism and have concluded that Christ could not have rose from the dead. So it isn't terribly unwise for the Christian to stake his apologetic on the shifting sands of scientific scholarship. Uh, he also has scientific scholarship in quotation marks there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, um, I actually kind of agree with him to some extent, though. If if all we knew is that someone named Jesus was resurrected at some point without any knowledge of Christianity, other than, I mean, no, no knowledge of Christianity at all, no, no Bible, then yes, it would just be an unrelated fact. But because we have the Bible to interpret the resurrection through, uh, through I think it, it actually would be very convincing if someone could demonstrate it. Or quite, or a, a significant a significant percentage of the way there to convincing me and, and several others. But I do agree with them that it is only because we have this Christian foundation that we're already working from, to some extent. Yeah, an analogy might be, supposing we discovered evidence all over the world of a flood, of a worldwide flood, that it all happened at the same time. You know, and then you went out to Mount Ararat, and there was the ruin, the wreck of, of the ark. You know, you know, and well, if you didn't have the story of Noah's ark, you would never connect those 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 the, these bits of data, and you wouldn't think that you know there was a worldwide flood and there were all these animals and stuff like that. You would just you would never connect these things. You would say, well, yeah, there was a you know worldwide flood, and there here's this boat up on this mountain. You wouldn't necessarily connect them, you know. But if you've got this story now, you're you're going to connect not just those two things together, but you're going to connect them to 
the rest of the narrative. You know, God's God's wrath and God causing the flood and you know, Noah and having to save all these animals and all of this stuff. You know, uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, it, evidence matters. <laughs> also, uh, also it comes to the fact where you're trying to build everything from not uh, from what. It could be described as close to being ground up, where it's just these facts you stumbled upon. Whereas we might also be testing uh, frameworks for for knowledge uh, or worldviews of seeing the world. For example, uh, Christianity would predict that uh, Jesus did rise from the dead. Now, it doesn't necessarily prove the rest of Christianity, but because it makes this prediction of uh, deducing that Jesus rose from the dead, you can make a concise historical argument. Then that goes to proving not the whole. The predictive, the predictive power of uh, the worldview itself. Not, I'm not saying it would be a science, but it would. But there's something to it that would uh, lead to predictability or something of, um, or something of a, co a consistency with the observable reality in general. It would demonstrate yeah. that at least this fact doesn't contradict this model. Um, so I, I agree. It would, it would definitely go, go part way there. It just seems so odd to me. I have to confess, it seems so odd to me to set the bar so high on proof. You know, like, and I, I know the theological reason behind it here. I mean, Bonson, you know, sort of quotes uh, passages from um, from the uh, from the New Testament where he says that you know what's needed here is sort of the full conviction, the full conviction of the, of the hope uh, that is within us. That is what has to um, to come into play here, and. A probabilistic argument. Oh well, it's likely that Jesus rose from the dead, and uh, that that to him won't do it. You you you've got to get the the, the full conviction. Uh, so I think that's what what's motivating this. But it seems so weird to me to to suggest that. Wait, you honestly believe that if we could establish that that Jesus rose from the dead as a historical fact, that that wouldn't persuade people? I think that would persuade people in their millions. Right, I mean, it's it, 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 the, the 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 bar on evidence so high, all the way up to the level of proof, is to divorce it from persuasion. You know, I, I find that really puzzling. I the, the more I think about it, the weirder it seems to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's an apologetic that doesn't seek to defend itself or to provide any any sort of defense. It's it's very it's very odd that way. Um, uh, you know, and he even says, you know, um, it's odd for an apologist. It's yeah. odd for an apologist. <laughs> you know, it's not odd for a philosopher or a theologian necessarily, necessarily, but as as an apologetic, you know, and I mean, he, you know, as an evangelical tool, this is bizarre. I, it's it's so counterintuitive. Yeah, it would be yeah, like, well, I'd be a I'd be a painter, and then I would, you know, I'd get there and I'd just say, your wall doesn't need paint, and uh, that would be it, right? Keep in mind that, that uh, Bonson, um, at least this was the claim, um, he, he always uh, made sure to make it clear that he was not looking to do evangelism as an apologist necessarily. He was looking to, yeah, yeah he was not trying to, to change people's hearts or anything like that, which is why he is so comfortable saying that if they don't buy my argument, that's their problem, not mine, right? Because he's, he's, he's they, they say they're looking to shut the mouths of the, the critics and the unbelievers, right? Right. Yeah, basically to to um, deal with people who uh, are insulting God and and basically stand up for God's in honor in a such a, in a certain way, you know, by doing this. 
what I wonder what his relationship was with people, his professional relationship with people like William Lane Craig and other apologists. You know, like I, I know he had this wonderful, uh, really interesting debate with R.C. Sproul. It was very polite, very cordial. Of course, I mean they're you know literally in the same camp, Reformed Christians. Um, but you know, like I wonder how, how tense it must have gotten because you know th this this is a pretty strong uh, indictment of the kind of apologetics that you know people like R.C. Sproul and Leland Craig and others are doing. It is, and I, honestly, I mean, I think even in that debate, you kind of see it near the end. They they get a little aggressive with each other. You guys gotta send me the link to this debate. I want to see it in the future. Yeah, it's not video recorded, but it, it's very interesting. Oh really? Yeah, it's audio, and it's it's really interesting. Uh, well, give me the link to the audio. Heck, I'll even read the transcript if I have to. <laughs> uh, I, I think I can find the audio. Yeah, we for should you. post it in the uh, YouTube video because uh, this, I think it, I think it has a lot of bearing to what we're talking about here. It does. It's it's a really good one, actually. Yeah. So I mean, um, Bonson basically he says here, um, the the sinner needs to change a changed heart and spiritually opened eyes, not more facts and reasons. Um, moreover, proving the reservation the resurrection as a historical fact would have no effect as far as engendering belief in God's word. The only tool the apologist needs is the word of God, for the sinner will either presuppose its truth and find Christianity to be coherent and convincing, or he will reject it and never be able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, I, I think I think that's where he's he's kind of coming to, and he he lists a, a, a Bible verse there that that seems to uh, to follow along with that. Um, Luke sixteen thirty one, where uh, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Um, I was curious if you guys had uh, any any kind of uh, thoughts on that. Um, it's that seems to be the closest he kind of gets to linking this biblically um, to me, anyways. Could you read the quote again? Uh, of the Bible verse, or just the... The Bible verse. Yeah, the, the Bible, Bible verse is, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. That's that's how mine states it. Hmm. Yeah. I think this is the closest he comes to, to really um, taking a Bible verse in the proper context and making it apply. I think this um, it, it, this is talking about sort of the way that, you know, if... if if God's Spirit, if, if the Holy Scriptures aren't doing the job, then no amount of evidence has got to do it. Yeah. Well, we've got that lovely story of doubting Thomas, right? Right. Yeah. Right. It's the guy who. But even then, it's like, you know? yeah. Even then, it's like, you know, hey, yeah. Uh, I mean, this worked for you, but it would be a whole lot better if it didn't have to. Yeah. Although it did work. E evidence apparently worked for Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, in that story, I mean, um, looks like it's the the story that. Uh, what is it here? Um, Abraham and Lazarus. Um, when uh, Lazarus is the what you call it, he's a poor person. Wait a second. Wait at his gates full of sores. Um, yeah, it was. I think it's 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 a parable, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, and basically, Lazarus is sort of a beggar that sits outside of his uh, his gates and and begs and. Um, all the while being presumably being uh, neglected by by the rich man, and then basically um, they they both die, and and Lazarus goes to heaven or what they would call heaven back then, and then um, the rich man is sort of in hell, and there's this sort of um, communication between the two 
um, or between the rich man and, and between Abraham, who's up there with Lazarus. And um, he says, hey, can you send uh, a messenger of some kind? Or I think he says actually send Lazarus uh, yeah, back from the Lazarus dead. For some reason, yeah. yeah, send Lazarus back. Let him warn my family that this is what's going to happen if they don't change their ways. And Abraham says, look, it's not going to do any good. I mean, if they've already rejected the the law and the prophets, if they've re rejected the, the their faith they're supposed to be holding on to, because these were, these were Jews, presumably, in this uh, this instance, um, it's not going to do any good. Personally, I always thought that that was that specific parable was uh, meant to be a bit of a polemic against the Sadducees. Who, uh, just to give you guys a bit of, uh, to give any listener some historical context, the Sadducees were one of the uh, four groups, uh, and the, one of the two top uh, Jewish sects at the time. They held a lot of uh, the high positions, apparently, and also uh, in the priesthood. They uh, only accepted the first five books of Moses and rejected. Uh, the prophets, which were essentially, if you weren't the one of the five uh, books of Moses, the Pentateuch, if I'm not mistaken, then it wasn't canonical. They denied the notion of a resurrection. They denied uh, the uh, notion of the afterlife. They thought people only lived once. And God rewards those who are good by having riches. So if you were a rich man, then that means, oh, you're worthy in God's sight and vision. Whereas if you're poor like Lazarus, well, that means you're a sinner of some kind. Whereas Jesus as a Pharisee, whereas Jesus as a Pharisee would have said, no, we need this notion of an afterlife because if we look in reality, there are people who are rich and they're just horrible pe persons. But if we look at poor people like good Lazarus here, who is nice and fit, then well, we ha they're not going to get rewarded. So we need this kind of shoal or afterlife where wrongs are set right. And he also uh, point and he also posits. So when I uh, hear Jesus say. Um, Neither will if they do not obey the law and the prophets. Neither will they accept a poor man. I take well, accept uh, someone uh, resurrected from the dead. I take that to mean that um, if they're not going to accept something fundamental as uh, the pro the prophets in taking hold of the law, then they're also going to reject um, a notion of the resurrection as well. So I take it to be a polemic against that specific group, as opposed to how. Um, as opposed to how uh, it's being phrased in uh, this specific uh, essay, so I'm, I think there might be some context that Bonson isn't taking in. Although there, although this is just one interpretation, I'm pretty sure there might be others. Well, he's not taking it in the full context, but I do think that he's he's at least using the verse the way it's meant to be used, in my opinion. I mean, he's he's making the same point, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. He, he's following the spirit of the of the of that the tradition. verse that he's citing. I, I, they sound a bit like uh, ancient Jewish objectivists <laughs> in some respects. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to think of them as sort of like weirdly conservative, you know, in, in, in what they took scripture to be. You know, they didn't like any of these newfangled books, you know, that the Pharisees were, uh, were impressed with. And the There's an old joke about the Sadducees. You see, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. So they were sad, you see. <laughs> nice. That's funny. It's a good, that's a good way to remember it. It's a good way. Yeah, it's a good mnemonic. Yeah. Totally. I just like to thank Rick Disgate for putting up that RC Sproul uh, link uh, debate to their uh, link to their debate there um, on the on the comment section. Thanks a lot, buddy. We uh, we appreciate you watching. Um, I, I think uh, I think just we're coming kind of to the end of it here, and um, it, it basically he says. Um, even some of the eleven disciples of Christ doubted while in his resurrected presence, um, and so that no amount of evidence can persuade him, even compelling evidence for Christ's re resurrection. 
Um, and he also gives the example of the two travelers on the road to Emos, M Emos, Emmaus, Emmaus. Sure, that's fine. Um, and uh, found them doubtful about the resurrec resurrection. Um, it says he rebuked them for being slow of heart to believe uh, all that the prophets have spoken of. Um, and then it says here, rather than offering them compelling evidence for his resurrection by immediately opening their eyes to recognize him, he made their hearts burn with them, uh, burn within them by expounding to them the scriptures. Um, it, now, I, I found that a little weird. Um, it's it says, you know, he doesn't offer them any compelling evidence, um, even, you know, rather than offering them compelling evidence for his resurrection by immediately opening their eyes to him or to recognize him. And it's it's odd because isn't that the exact thing that Bonson says needs to happen in order for me to recognize the truth of the resurrection? That, that Jesus has to open my eyes, right? Um, and it seems odd that Jesus doesn't do that to the two men walking, um, and and actually disappears in front of them, uh, which would be considered, I think, evidence for something supernatural occurring. Um, and it, it, So it's, it seems like um, all these people, the, the disciples, these two men, they get evidence uh, when they're questioning. You know, their doubts are answered with evidence, and yet Bonson feels like we're, we would be impious to, to ask for evidence for ourselves. Um, I was wondering if you guys noticed uh, that little bit of contradiction there. Yeah, I did. Well, that whole story of the you know the two uh, followers walking to Emmaus, um, it's kind of weird. Like, you know, why don't they recognize Jesus? You know, uh, you know, why does in, a, in one of the other gospels, why does uh, you know uh, one of the women see Jesus and mistake him for a gardener and stuff like that? I mean, there's something going on that's rather weird in these post-resurrection yeah. accounts where they where people can't recognize Jesus. Obviously, whatever he came back. Uh, looking like, according to the authors of these stories, he didn't look like himself. Um, Which you know. raises a whole host of questions. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, presumably there's some kind of theological point being made in these stories. Um, you know, I mean, and some people have thought, well, this is how you explain why the post-resurrection story haven't always been in circulation. You know, why are we only hearing about these post-resurrection stories now? Oh, it's because Jesus didn't look like himself. You see, yeah. uh, and if you look at that story, um, you know, people only ever figure out after Jesus disappears. Oh, that was Jesus we were just having dinner with. Yeah, yeah. It, they, yeah <laughs> right? the, the two the two um, men actually they seem don't to... recognize him in the. It, yeah, the, the two men seem to to have a knowledge of Jesus, and yet they don't recognize him when they're walking with him. And as soon as he disappears, that's kind of when they make that realization and have to walk all the way back um, to tell the disciples of what they... It's weird. They know the disciples, so clearly they know who Jesus is, and yet didn't recognize him. It, it's, it's, it boggles the mind, really. Um, you have to kind of suppose a, a whole other layer of... Um, like supernatural intervention in order to deposit that sort of thing, right? Um, or maybe Jesus was really, really clean-shaven in life, and after <laughs> three days he had enough of a beard that they're like, no, that's obviously not Jesus. Or vice versa, right? Maybe his beard fell off during <laughs> when he died. Um, I don't know if that's something that happens, but... Yeah, anyway, so whatever the theological implications are, or whether it's those, those stories are to sort of, sort of explain away why the... the the post-resurrection stories, you know, were not always known, and why we're only finding out about them now and stuff like that, which is one, one possible interpretation, um, one that most Christians would reject, of course. You know, whatever account is going on here, it is kind of weird that that 
supernatural things seem to have to happen for people to, to, to realize what's going on. Or the Doubting Thomas story, you know. Geez, you know, you, you know, Thomas, you didn't hear that, that Jesus got crucified? Well, here he is, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I heard that he was crucified. Well, here he is. I mean, what, you know, there's no way to make sense of the Doubting Thomas story. If, he's, if, he's, if he knew Jesus and he's looking at Jesus right now, he either didn't know he had been crucified or didn't believe he'd been crucified, um, or he thinks he's not looking at Jesus, you know. And then, then there's the business of the wounds, well, you know. Uh, uh, well, there's the evidence. If Actually, go um, ahead. in the Doubting Thomas story, um, I think – I don't think it's actually um, – I don't think a narrative flows quite that way. I think actually um, they, they tell him they've seen Jesus, and he's not there present at the time. And he says, um, well, until I you know put my hands on the wounds and things like that, I'm not going to believe it. Then Jesus appears and immediately upon appearing says, hey, you know, here I am. If you want to um, you know, do your test, I'm right here. He doesn't even do the oh. test. He just falls down. So it's, it's actually not that he saw Jesus and didn't recognize him in his case anyway. Oh, no, I wasn't proposing that he didn't recognize him. I, what I was proposing, I, I was still getting the story wrong, but what I was proposing was that if he saw Jesus and didn't believe it, um, which is where I was getting it wrong, um, but if he saw Jesus and didn't believe it, it, it could only have been that either Jesus didn't look like himself or he didn't believe he'd ever been um, killed. So, right, right, yeah. right. Okay, but no, I was getting the story wrong. I, I had forgotten. Um, I'll have to reread it again, now, but I'll, t I'll take you at your word that uh, that he that he was act he was saying this Upon hearing reports of Jesus' resurrection, had not right, yet right. seen him. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that, that's what separates him from the guys on the Emmaus Road, right? Because they right. saw him and didn't recognize him. Yes, they did see him, yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, I uh, you know I think that's I think that's really good. I, I think we're kind of coming up to I mean we're right at the end of the uh, of the of the essay here. Um, I think the only other part uh, the only other quote I really was looking at was um, while there, while we may momentarily silence the belligerent claim of the skeptic by showing that even on this tacit assumption the resurrection is not a sheer impossibility, as evidence would indicate, our central defense of the face had had better be made of stronger stuff. Um, as Paul at Athens, we must demand a complete change of world outlook and presupposition, and not just a mere addition of a few facts. Um, I was curious about that 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 uh, that idea of Paul at Athens. Um, did he demands a change of world outlook and presupposition? Um, I I don't think I'm familiar with that story. Did anybody else uh, have a have an idea of what that referring to? Is that where he preaches at the Temple of Apollo, and uh, he then. Uh... And then uh, the crowd goes on to see the temple collapse. Um, I don't I, rem remember a temple collapsing, but um, yeah, th this is where he's preaching. Uh, yeah, the, the temple of Apollo. Yeah, I think it's Apollo. Uh, do you know what chapter of Acts that would be? It's Acts seventeen. Ah, oh, thanks. Okay, I'm on my way there. Um, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I just uh, okay. Acts. I'm gonna write that down. I just I, they didn't. He didn't provide a uh, a Bible verse for that, so I was curious about where that was written. Awesome. So I mean, um, I don't know. I think it's 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 a curious uh, essay, um, because it sort of eliminates a lot of what would be considered regular apologetics from from what would be considered proper apologetics, right? Um. There's there's sort of this um, this idea that um, I don't know presuppositionalism seems to want to burn 
the bridges that it comes from, you know. Um, it seems seems very eager to throw hand grenades uh, behind it as it advances forward, you know. Um, kind of drop it on their own troops a little bit. And, yeah. Uh, I was curious if you guys noticed that. It's, it seems like he's He's really is kind of destroying the idea that we can even possibly uh, argue evidentially for for almost any a bit of Christianity uh, and sort of using the resurrection as the example of that because um, I think it's more biblically uh, referenced a little more um, but I think I think that's what he's trying to get at here. I'm actually not too surprised by that though. I mean, most like religious splinter groups, and I, I know presuppositionalists aren't a religious splinter group, but but most splinter groups often end up fighting hardest against the group they splintered off of. Um, so it's not too surprising, I guess. But it is it is it is interesting, and certainly doesn't seem very helpful. Yeah. It seems counterproductive. And just in a more narrow sense, um, it's not at all surprising. They do the same thing that um. The uh, the Protestants did really. They're not um, what they're 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 rejecting that they they stood on the shoulders of these other people. What they're saying is, hey, we we have our eyes have been opened, and now we see um, that the Bible had it right all along, right? So they they don't think that they're coming from a, a long line of apologetics, and that they're sort of you know um, taking it and 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 reformulate it in some way. What they say is, no, we've thrown all of that out the window. You know, we we it's all terrible. It's all nonsense. We go straight to the Bible, which oh lo and behold says exactly. What to do, and we're doing it exactly like the Bible says. Uh, Interesting. Reminds, reminds, it reminds me a lot of uh, when uh, Protestants uh, rally against Catholics, and even though they're the splinter group, they're the ones who say we essentially had what the Bible said was right all along. It reminds me a bit of that. Hmm. Although uh, I'm come from a more Catholic perspective, so I'll just say uh, <laughs> my bias right now. Yeah, I think um, I I don't know. I just right at the beginning here. I, I just kind of wanted to get your guys' thing on this on this statement. It was it's sort of it, it's right at the beginning, and uh, we might have covered it already, but uh, let's let's do it here. Um, the biblical faith is not indifferent to God's acts in history, nor is it pessimistic about evidences. The dead bones of Jesus will never be found, and the believer never need never fear investigation into the facts. Um, that seems almost contradictory to what. He says basically in the entire rest of it here, um, you know that that almost that um, the facts are to be feared. You know that we should we should we should be worried about placing our faith in in facts uh, or or. Um, yeah, I think that's different though. He's yeah. he's saying here that that the facts do not contradict our worldview, and throughout the rest of it, he's saying, but arguing on the basis of the facts is impious. Arguing on the basis of the facts is not very pragmatic. Uh, I don't think it's a contradiction, but it is interesting. I mean, he he, I, I it also, it, it's also not. It, it also makes sense. I mean, naturalists will say this too. They'll say, well. I mean, we need not fear scientific discovery. We're not going to find God at the bottom of everything. So it, it's 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 not. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it, it really comes down to the issue um, when it when it comes to the issue of facts. It comes down to um, yeah, evidence can help a Christian, um, you know, con confirm certain things on the worldview. But at the end of the day, no Christian is going to base his faith on anything but the knowledge of God through the Holy Spirit that he's been given. Right. So we he, it, it to say that it's po to even say that it's possible that someday that the bones of Christ can be found and Christianity can be shown to be false just goes to show that you don't truly have that knowledge, that absolute inner knowledge from the Holy Spirit that a Christian should have. And you need to, you have to operate assuming that we know, you know, they know absolutely for certain based on Revelation 
the revelation that they have received that this is true. Therefore, they know with absolute certainty that no future discovery is going to invalidate religion in any way or Christianity in any way. That's a very good point. I I, I missed that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that makes sense. Um. I don't. Know, I, th I think I find it a little. Just the wording of it maybe is is funny. You know, the dead bones of Jesus will never be found. Um, I, it's, it's oh, it's highly presumptuous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's and it's not necessarily um, inaccurate of a statement, but I, I don't think it, it proves anything. Or you know, it doesn't it doesn't make me feel any better about um, if I was a believer. It wouldn't make me feel any better about the investigation of the facts, right? Um, I think you would you would kind of admit that okay, well, the bones of you know, many people throughout history have not been found, you know, Well, when he says that... it'll never be found, what he's yeah. saying is that, that the dead ones of Jesus don't even exist. They are not there to be found. Nothing we could do could ever reveal that they... We could never find them, is what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a... There, there are two sides to this, as I see it. I, I, I sort of missed uh, what um, Elijah was saying, so forgive me if I'm repeating something you might have said, but, like, the idea here is that there's nothing to fear from the facts, of course, uh, because there are no facts that are ever going to, to contradict. Uh, but sort of the other side of that is, well, you don't have to be too, um, too eager digging around for facts either. Um, they're nothing to the point. They're nothing to be feared, and arguing evidentially is improper. So, you know, don't get hung up on the facts. The facts are all on your side. Just don't. Just rest assured, the facts are all on your side. Whatever facts come to light. And it is presumptuous, but it is a presumption that pretty much everyone makes. Um, I mean, most people would make that claim at press. Like, as I said, I, I said most, most people with a naturalistic worldview would say, well, we're never going to learn anything that, that'll make me believe in God. I mean, probably not, but, but it's, I, think it's, I think there's the analogy is very much, well, Sarah, what are you going to say, Elijah? I, I do think this, and, and it partly goes back to what I was saying about their, them talking about their knowledge comes from a whole different source. That's really what it, what it comes down to. So I, I, in that sense, like, I mean, as, for me, I mean, I, I think that it's highly unlikely that I'm going to find that, that we're going to find God at the bottom of anything, right? So unlikely that it's probably not worth taking seriously. But the, what they're saying is it is absolutely an impossibility that anything is going to come along. You know, it's, it's imp I mean, if they're a young earth creationist, it is impossible that young earth creationism could be false, no matter what you see in science, right? Yeah, I think that the, the difference here is only what source they use to determine that it, it's absolutely true. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people with naturalistic worldviews that would argue that miracles are absolutely impossible, that nothing can be outside of nature. Um, and so they would they would take right. the same position, but for very different yep. reasons. I certainly grant you that the reasons are completely different. Yeah, you're right. Now, there's definitely there's definitely some people, yeah, that, that basically take just as hard line of an approach. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Eddie, what did, what did you have um, to think about um, this. With was... regards to the bones, I just think he, I just think he means that we're never going to find uh, anyone's bones in history. Like, um, if in the Christian thought, it's if you discovered, if we're to discover tomorrow that there was D a DNA evidence that precluded that Jesus died, like you found his bones or flesh, that, that's highly improbable. Never going to happen. I'm not. I don't wake up in the morning thinking. What is the possibility that somebody found the grave and tomb and body of Jesus? It's an it's an impractical possibility. So I think what he's trying to say is, the Christian should take com the the uh, evidentialist would take in comfort knowing that there is really no way that that kind of disproof could come along. Even though it's a form of falsifiability, it's not a 
form of falsifiability that one should expect to find ever. I actually think this point might be a bit stronger, but yeah, no, that that's that's also another reasonable point. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, if uh, if I was gonna kind of interpret it like that, I might, I mean, I might move it into his idea of, um, you know, the idea of that, uh, that historical, the historical fact might be done through an inductive argument, right? Um, so there, there would only be. Um, What's available to us in order to prove it? Um, but I, I get, I get, I get kind of what you're saying there, Eddie. Um, I was, I was wondering what your thoughts were on um, just the idea of arguing evidentially. Um, I mean, do you, do you find that it, it, that you would consider it an impropriety uh, to do so? Um, right before we answer that, though, let me be clear, Picures. I think your interpretation is actually a really good one. I, I'm not sure it's what he's saying. I was just, I actually agree with the point you're making, though, that it, it isn't something one would be concerned with. Um, I, I actually totally agree with that, just to be clear. Uh, in terms of arguing for the resurrection, I take it, I don't take uh, the notion of, let's just say hypothetically that it did happen, um, or that uh, Moses part of the Red Sea. I don't think that is a claim that, even though it would have happened, I don't think that's a claim you can deduce through historical efforts. I mean, there are ancient civilizations that we've uncovered, that have been uncovered that uh, was due to um, a few artifacts being found. But to precise just one event in ancient history, that that would take, that takes a lot of evidence. It's, or it would take a lot of evidence. I don't think historically you could argue one way or another. I, I take it to be fact on theological terms with my own religious experience, but I, I, I would assume that if we did do Elijah's experiment, I'd go in there assuming, hey, we're definitely going to find Jesus, but uh, uh, rising from the dead. But I don't think you could argue one way or another on historical grounds. At least I haven't been convinced. Now, is it? Now, I don't think there's some moral impropriety about arguing it. If you think you can make a historical case, go for it. I'm not convinced myself, but I would, but I wouldn't uh, hold any attempt to be unbiblical in the way that it might be presented in this paper. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Arguing for particular historical events is really challenging, even ones with like thousands of direct participants or hundreds of thousands of direct participants. I mean, uh, Pompeii is a fantastic example. Uh, Pompeii, where the Vulcan, uh, was a fantastic example, uh, they uncovered uh, the archaeology behind uh, a volcano. Uh, uh, going off and people dying, but in terms of recorded or written history, there was only one reference to it, and it was a passing by. People thought it was uh, a myth, uh, not on the par of Atlantis, but somewhere close, but apparently that was also uh, proven to be true. I'm not saying that the resurrection is going to be proven to be true or false one way or another, but just, uh, just to say that for a particular event to be verified as true with uh, uh, an ancient historical method is rather difficult. There are, yeah, there are battles that, that probably had hundreds of thousands of participants that are very hard to pin down to a particular time or place or outcome. So, yeah, I, I think it's very hard to, to pin these sorts of things down. Yeah, it's too bad a volcano didn't uh, <laughs> erupt uh, right around oh, that Jesus, time. <laughs> being resurrected. Well, if, if he had been, uh, yeah, I don't know, cemented on the uh, on the Calvary Hill there, I mean, there wouldn't be any doubt about it, right? But <laughs> oh, yeah. that would that would entail a double resurrection, though. We'd have to find the empty mold. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, but there's the, that second question, right? I mean, like, if if this if this resurrection is this miracle that's supposed to be so unlikely, then why isn't it 
maximally unlikely, right? I mean, why isn't there lots of why is there why is there even this sort of this weird level of plausibility that seems to be inputted over top of it, right? Um, why not just just claim it's magic? You know, why didn't um, why wasn't there a million balloons released when Jesus was risen from the dead, right? Like, I mean, that would be sort of interesting. You know, there would be. I, and, I, and I'm not saying that um, you know a thousand people raising from the dead or whatever are isn't interesting, but there's a. You know, there's. I th I feel like you know maybe they're just setting their sights. They were just setting their sights a little low back then. You know, if you're if you're going to make something up, it seems like you should make it. You know, something maximally uh, amazing. Well, it's and a local religion, right? <laughs> yeah. It was well, a local keep religion. Mind. Keep in mind that it gets pretty. I mean, there the sky supposedly goes completely black. The zombies rise from the dead. You know, like we've <laughs> talked about before. The 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 curtain in the holy there's of holies rips in half. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's an earthquake. Yeah. You it know, gets like, pretty and extreme. You might be, you know, you might be right. That's all in one gospel. If, one gospel, though. Sure, yeah. It gets a bit. It, it, yeah, there is a bit more flesh. There is more that is fleshed out as you go through the gospels. Uh, although, if you look to some of the Gnostic gospels, specifically Thomas, it's actually pretty amazing. Uh, there's a portrait, apparently, in that narrative, a huge cross comes down from the sky and announces uh, Jesus coming out That's from the Peter. grave. And there's a resurrection. That's the Gospel of Peter. That's the Gospel of Peter. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, so there is. Yeah. So uh, in terms of some of the apocryphal gospels, it gets much more mythologized. Whereas you look at something along the lines of Matthew or Luke, it's fair. It's fairly straightforward. It's relatively straightforward, I would say, <laughs> at least at least yeah. in certain areas. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I would say Mark is fairly straightforward, and I, there's a lot of myth making, I think, in evidence in uh, Luke and Matthew, and. Yeah, and, uh, and and by the time you get to John, it, there's a different kind of myth making going on. But um, I, I sort of see it sort of unfolding as the gospels get uh, oh yeah the later gospels get written. Uh, yeah. But yeah, nothing like like Peter. The Gospel of Peter is really hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, Andrew Clark here in the comments, he said that um in the Mark account we see more of a Gnostic perspective where they don't see the the form as the same being. Um, so it's pneuma rather that rather than flesh itself. Hmm. So it seems like I mean he's he's saying that uh, Jesus isn't isn't really referred to as being resurrected in his original body. There's there's a there's like a another another layer of being that he's he's kind of transformed into or not layer um but uh, another type of being that he's transformed into. Uh, keep in mind though that uh, we should keep in mind though that the resurrection that happens in uh, Mark is considered to be very dubious. Uh, Verses nine and onward. Uh, so I'm pretty sure um, every, if you have a Bible, chances are it comes with uh, a little note or indent that says that the ending is not historic, cannot be found in a various amount of ancient manuscripts. So, yeah, it's the it, last twelve verses are kind of. Uh, there's yeah. no post-resurrection accounts at all in in uh, in the uh, the oldest and best manuscripts of Mark. Although I, I'm not sure what the what the debate is on uh, the ending. I think Elijah has much more knowledge on that than I do, so I'll just uh, take it to him. You're talking about the ending of Mark? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the earliest and best manuscripts don't have um, anything past. Uh, strangely enough, we were talking about this earlier. Um, the part where the women run from the tomb and don't tell anybody what they saw. Um, that's that's what we have after that is is not in the earliest manuscripts. And there's some other variations of the ending that show up here and there, but there's it's really impossible to pinpoint what the actual ending was. And that's there's some debate. Great ending. Yeah. yeah. Well, sort of. <laughs> except it doesn't, make any, ending. it doesn't make any sense when you think about like how did the story get 
to somebody if the women didn't tell anybody. Um, unless they wrote the story, there would be no no real way to get to the, that point, right? But other than that, it, it is an, an amazing yeah. ending. Although you could possibly yeah. make an argument well, not... that, although you could maybe make the argument that uh, because it wasn't found originally in Mark, uh, that uh, Matthew and Luke might have had a had an identical source uh, uh, underlying the idea of the resurrection. Well, it couldn't have been identical. Couldn't have been no, not identical. Because they tell they, they they give completely different um, yeah. post-resurrection accounts than from one another. So they they can't they can't have been copying from the same account. But they might they might have been remembering uh, or relying upon uh, an oral tradition or something like that. Or there might have been a written source, but they didn't have it in front of them to copy, right? Hmm. Um, so they you know they the stories diverge, right? But there might have been oral traditions that they had that Mark didn't have. But my my suspicion is that. Well, this is just my suspicion that that Mark is an apotheosis story. You know that, you know it, it ends with with Jesus being vindicated, and and being taken up into heaven. But you never you never see the body. Um, and there's no post-resurrection stories because that's that's just where the story ends. The, the story is, he was vindicated. He was he was resurrected, and there I, he is uh, up there in heaven. You know that, uh, I think that's might have been the original. Yeah. Uh, I want to say that I, I actually um, agree exactly the same as Ozzy on that. I take a I take a very unpopular position with the the format, with uh, the progression of the Gospels. I actually think Matthew and Luke were written first, and then Mark was just a, a copy of uh, both of them. So I know that's uh, very, fairly radical, but I point to uh, the tradition of the Church for that one. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's something that can be fleshed out. But uh, I just want to. Take out it's my not. Point. It's still honestly. It's still. It's not. Totally radical nowadays. I mean, there's there's still a pretty good number of people that would subscribe to it. Yeah, I know a Southern Baptist pastor who uh, who subscribes to that actually. You know, you know, he, he's uh, he's not radical. You know, Catholic. he's maximally conservative. You know, uh, Catholic. There are a few Catholic be, um, scholars who would also take that view as well. Guys, I had to do this. I'm gonna actually have to take off. I got to go run and uh, pick somebody sure. up. Sure, uh, Elijah. Actually, I was I was just about to ask if we could if we could wrap it up, guys, and uh, you know if anybody had any any just closing statements or thank yous. Uh, I don't know. Just uh... thank you to you for oh, you know, thanks, yeah. leading this. I, I really appreciate it. No, I uh, yeah, I, I always I always love doing these things, um, and I, and I appreciate you guys' involvement and uh, everybody's enthusiasm for this one today. It was was really awesome. Uh, I gotta say I, I know very little about the Bible because I was not raised a Christian and so I did not have much to add here but it was very interesting to hear you all talk about it and I think I'm going to re-listen to this one because there's a lot here that you're referencing things I just don't understand at all so that was really cool actually so thank if you, you all want, if you want to start with the Bible then start with uh, don't start with the Old Testament and work your way up from beginning to end I suggest starting with the New Testament and uh, Starting off with the New Testament and then working your way back to the Old Testament. Uh, hmm. That's at least the method I went with. I found it a lot easier. I I don't know how I'm going to have to read them in college, but I know I'm going to have to read the Bible at some point, so we'll see how I have to read it. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be select readings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most likely. I doubt you read the whole Bible. No, you won't. <laughs> his, his curriculum is way too packed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not going not gonna to waste time with okay, that. Okay, Elijah, we should... We should... Elijah, we should let you go. You're going to be late picking somebody up. So. Cool. Well, with that, I think I think we'll just say uh, goodbye, everybody. Anybody who's who wants to hang out and talk afterwards is welcome. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching and uh, for your continued participation. And with that, uh, Sophia Ex Nilo is out of here. Uh, goodbye, oh, lots oh, of friends. 
Oh, well, well, hold on one moment. Um, there's going to be a discussion about Theatetis on Friday. We were going to oh, do it right. this Monday, yes. but yeah. we did not get enough people together, and we were not well prepared for it, so I'll be hosting that on Friday. Um, and then, um, John, we're gonna, you're going to do the first of what will probably be several episodes on Hume's essay on natural religion next Monday, right? Correct. Yes, that is that is the plan so far. Uh, the dialogues on natural religion is something that I actually really enjoy, and I, I've actually had a hard time putting it down lately. So uh, I will. Well, I'm sure we'll all be really prepared for that. And, Excellent. And next Friday we're going to try to do meditations on first philosophy by Descartes. So there's that to look forward to. With respect to the Theaetetus, that's a dialogue by Plato, and it's the it's the sort of the locus classicus, the the, the the starting point where we get this idea of justified true belief as the definition of knowledge. So, so you could say it's a founding document in epistemology, then. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Nice. Cool. Well, all right, philosopher friends. I guess we'll uh, we'll say our we'll say our goodbyes, um, and uh, and we'll we'll see you guys next time. All right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Cool. Good see night. You. Good night.